And now for something completely different. This is the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's do it. Welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. With you till 3 on this Monday as we kickstart another week. We're plenty to get to over the next few hours. Coming up. Yesterday was the Open Championship won or lost. Plus, which of the all-time greats has the best chance of winning a championship before they officially retire? Sean Watson as we wait for his verdict in terms of an NFL punishment what we could take away from how the Houston Texans handled things over the weekend plus SEC media days begin today so I figured this would be a fitting week to go through all the conferences with our season preview and picks today we begin with the Pac-12 we'll run through all five power five conferences throughout the week ending with the SEC on Friday We have reached the All-Star break in Major League Baseball. We'll talk about the home run derby and the All-Star game tomorrow. Also, which quarterback could be the best in the SEC this year? And a whole lot more throughout the afternoon. With it till 3, you can join the conversation throughout 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays, on Facebook at ESPN Radio Charleston, via email studio at KirkmanBroadcasting.com, or online at CharlestonSportsRadio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there, or you can even take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at CharlestonSportsRadio.com. With you till 3 on this Monday. Anderson's on the steel wheels. Anderson, what's going on? How are you? Oh, I'm doing great this afternoon, Luke. I, I hope your weekend went well. Uh, I'm ready for a good week here again. Yeah, likewise. Happy to hear. Hopefully everyone had a great weekend. Let's start with uh, the Open yesterday. You know, we don't uh, open the show with golf a whole lot. There's always multiple ways to look at the same thing. And we always say in sports, you know, like, oh, they played terrible today. That team played terrible. Oh, they just couldn't shoot it well. Or their passing game was off. And maybe that's all accurate, but sometimes the opponent has something to do with it as well. We'll put the blame in one area. Maybe we need to split it between the two different teams or give more credit to the opponent. Yesterday, I was watching the golf. And Cam Smith pulled off a a, a great come-from-behind win for his major victory. He played great. But I still think that Rory let one slip away. Maybe choke is too strong of a word. There wasn't some sort of moment right, where Rory let things slip away where he totally screwed up. Maybe he didn't completely choke, but he certainly let one go through his fingertips. And the question would be, was that one by Cam or was it lost by Rory? And I think it was both. 
you're up three strokes, up two strokes at the turn, and couldn't hold on on your, you know, believed home course. And while Cam Smith played great, Rory, meanwhile, posted the second-worst score of any top-10 golfer yesterday. Of the guys top-10 on the leaderboard, he had the second-worst score. So yesterday, that was a day where great scores were to be had. Everybody was playing well. And Rory finished ninth out of the top-10 just yesterday alone, despite going in with the lead. In fact, he was closer to the worst score of the top-10 than he was the best score out of the top-10 yesterday. Not great. He two-putted on all 18 holes. Right, could you make one big one? Could be the difference in yesterday afternoon. He had plenty of chances. Try to pull away to try to hold on to the lead. Try to better his score. Instead, had just two birdies throughout the afternoon. And Cam Smith became the first golfer to win his first title at St. Andrews after trailing after 54 holes in 83 years. Now, what he did was tremendous. And he went on that run there of, what was it, like five straight birdies? It was phenomenal. Great putting. But Rory, meanwhile, was kind of like cruising in the right-hand lane and got blown by in the left-hand lane, right? Smith blew him right by him in the, uh, the passing lane as Rory was just cruising along. Almost as if to play, you know, almost like uh, when guys play not to lose. And that can happen after certain experiences. In the case of Rory, he has not won a major in eight years. Remember, you know, he's finished in the top five about 11 times since then. Yesterday finished third. Has been a runner-up a couple of times. Forget once bitten, twice shy. Uh, This has happened over and over again. And I'm sure it's something that you may think about in those situations. All right, as you're leading, coming down the home stretch on Sunday, heading into the final nine holes on your home course, looking for your first win in eight years, not to mention the fact that Rory's become almost like the poster child for the PGA Tour because of his outspoken nature against the Live Golf Tour. And the fact that he's sticking, for the time being, with the PGA Tour. And they've rallied behind him. And he's been their mouthpiece, and he's been their guy. And, well, what a big win it would have been if he pulled this off on Sunday. And the PGA Tour could lift him up on their shoulders after the relationship has changed in recent weeks. You know, I often relate things to basketball because that's what I know most. That's what I grew up playing the most, come from a basketball family. And in basketball, it's like when you would play for a coach that had a quick hook, he take you out the first mistake you made. You turn the basketball over, you're coming out. You take a bad shot, you're coming out right away. And coaches will do this to try to teach you a lesson. But problem is that when you play for a coach like that, you start to play a little scared. You're afraid of screwing up because you know you're going to come out of the game. You take a bad shot, right? you're, you're being pulled. So then you become a little uh, afraid to pull the trigger. You make a bad pass, right? you're going to come out of the game. And you're a little afraid to be aggressive and try to thread the needle. Try to make a nice pass to a cutter in the lane because ah, if I turn it over, I'm coming out. I just came in the game. I don't want to go back to the bench. And you play a little scared. You play not to lose. And Rory was a little bit of that yesterday. Now, he look, he played really well still yesterday. You know, played pretty good. As I mentioned, did have the second worst score of the top ten on the leaderboard. But still, you know, played pretty well. But he never had that magic moment. Never went and grabbed the victory. Was just kind of coasting along, hoping that he would be able to ease his way right to the finish yesterday. And meanwhile, other guys came flying by him. He didn't necessarily do anything wrong on the course, per se. He played well enough, but he didn't do anything great either. And that's the big issue. To win these events, sometimes you have to be great. To go win a championship in any sport, there have to be some great plays, great performances, great teams. You don't win championships by just simply being good or doing okay or trying to hold serve. You have to go out there. You have to go grab what you want. 
can't just wait around for it. And that's in sports and that's in life as well, right? You can't wait around for your dream job to offer you an opportunity. You have to try to be aggressive and go for it. You can't wait around at the bar hoping that your dream girl is going to come up to you. You have to take your chance and try to start that conversation. You can't wait around and hope that all of life's fortunes will just drop in your lap. You have to go out and grab what you want. Be aggressive. Go for it. Cam Smith did. Went out, went for it, grabbed it, and got the big win yesterday. All right, Rory had what he needed. He had a lead yesterday. The guy we thought he'd have to worry about, Victor Hovland, was uh, terrible yesterday. Quickly fell out of the race. Looked like it was set up for a big win for Rory. And yet, he couldn't quite finish it off. To me, that seems like one of the more disappointing losses for him in the last eight years. Because of what's going on with the Live Golf Tour, the PGA Tour, Rory's become like the sacred son. Because he had that lead and yesterday, because it's the home course, and because he didn't necessarily screw, he didn't hit one into the water. Right? There's not like one hole you point to and say, oh, man, that's where he really let it slip away. No, it was just throughout the afternoon. I couldn't hit a big-time birdie putt. Uh, he two-putted on every hole, had only two birdies throughout the afternoon, just didn't have that big shot or big play where he just went for it and secured his victory yesterday, instead letting it slip away. Here was Rory yesterday after the loss. Here's what he had to say about coming up just a little bit short. Yeah, just disappointment, I guess. Didn't feel like I did many things wrong, but the putter just sort of went cold on me there pretty much throughout the round. I got beaten by the the better player this week to go out and shoot 64 to, to win an Open Championship at St. Andrews is, is a hell of a showing, and you know, hats off to Cam. He's, he's had an unbelievable week. That was Rory yesterday. Now, he didn't even finish in second. He ended up finishing in third. And reports were that after Cameron Smith's victory, there are reports. I think Cam Smith denied it yesterday, but reports of him now going to the Live Golf Tour, which could be a big get for the Live Golf Tour. After what you saw yesterday and the fact that he just won a major, and that's when he jumped ship. You kind of steal the headlines if you're Live Golf, along with seemingly a talented golfer as well. We'll see what transpires there. Meanwhile, Tiger Woods didn't make it to the weekend. He wasn't involved yesterday. He was done before we even... Got to the official cut at the end of uh, the round on, on Friday. And it was a disappointing performance. And it didn't look like Tiger Woods of even 2022, let alone Tiger Woods from 10, 20, 15 years ago. You know, it's interesting. We're winding down the careers of some of the all-time greats in each sport. Tom Brady may be done after this year. LeBron James has a few seasons left. He's hoping to play with his son. Tiger Woods, who knows how much longer he's actually going to compete out there. Then you have also, uh, um, even in the, uh, in the hockey world, Right, with Crosby and Ovechkin, they're getting up there as well. Major League Baseball, not as much. I mean, I guess you could say Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera, who are going to be honored tomorrow at the All-Star Game. But they're not, you know, they may be Hall of Fame talents. They're not two guys that we would consider in the uh, greatest of all time conversation. Brady is the greatest of all time. LeBron is debated. Tiger Woods, debated if not accepted. Crosby and Ovechkin are up there with uh, Wayne Gretzky and the others. They're in the conversation. Gretzky's still the greatest of all time. But they're in the conversation. I don't know if Pujols and Cabrera are even in the conversation. We know they've had great careers. I don't know if people are debating that they're on the Mount Rushmore or they're one of the best players of all time. They're really good baseball players. So maybe we ignore Major League Baseball. But the other sports, we have an all-time legend, an all-time great who will soon be hanging it up. Which one could win again before retiring? Now, I was pondering this as I was watching Tiger Woods. However, and I was planning on talking about this today, and then I turned on ESPN's Get Up this morning as I was getting ready this morning to come into work, and I saw they were talking about the same thing except focusing on Brady and LeBron. 
because LeBron went and played in the Drew League over the weekend, and that got them to a similar question, where they're asking, who's going to win a championship next, LeBron or Brady? I was watching Tiger not make it to the weekend, and I was wondering, as I watched Tiger at this point in his career, we see these all-time greats reaching the end. Can any of them still win a championship? Which one could win again before retiring? I don't think Tiger Woods will win again. Certainly not a major. I mean, the best hope for Tiger is that everybody keeps going to live golf, and he could, if he plays in one of these other events that's not a major, right, then the field isn't quite as good. And maybe he could win some random event if he's going to play in one on the PGA Tour. But I don't think where he's at in his life physically and in his career, I don't think Tiger will be able to compete for a major again. For LeBron James, he may hang around long enough. He hopes to play with his kid in a couple of years. And if you watch even the highlights, I know it's the Pro-Am out in L.A. It's the Drew League, which is pretty highly regarded. right? But the dude, what he can still do at his age and the shape he's in, and the fact that the sport has become more of a three-point game, which allows you to stay in the league longer, and LeBron's three-point attempts per game have gone up six straight years. He'll hang around for a few more years. Maybe he could find himself on a good enough roster that they could win a championship. But where he currently is in L.A., I don't think it will happen. Outside of that bubble year, which was unlike any other season, LeBron James has zero playoff wins in his three other years with the Lakers. And I don't like the shape this roster's in right now. Crosby and Ovechkin haven't won enough already in hockey, and the NHL is very unpredictable. And if you want to tell me Pujols and Cabrera, they're not going to win either. Pujols is retiring at the end of the year. His team's not going to be in the playoffs. And uh, Cabrera is on a team that uh, can't have a winning season. And he will soon be retiring as well. But Tom Brady's the one to me that I could see winning once again. And what's crazy about it is that Tom Brady probably only has one year left. He's probably the guy in that list, outside of the baseball players, that will be retiring first. Tiger Woods is going to play longer than Tom Brady at this point. LeBron James will last longer moving forward now than Tom Brady will. And yet, I still think Tom Brady has the best chance of all of them to get one more championship before retiring. Even if he only plays one more year, I'll still take my chances that it's Brady. If you tell me, yeah, Brady's only going to play one more year, LeBron's going to be in the league for four, I'll still take my chances that Tom Brady would get a Super Bowl before LeBron gets another championship. Because I think Tom Brady just is that good. The Buccaneers are that good. The NFC is that weak this year. I could see the Buccaneers going and winning a Super Bowl this year. I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever. I'd be more surprised if the Lakers, who couldn't even get into the playing round last year, were to win a championship. I'd be more surprised if Tiger, right, who's putting together his worst rounds of his career, and understandably so, if he somehow wins a major in the next year or two. I just don't see it happening. But I could see Tom Brady winning a Super Bowl this year before finally retiring. We'll get to Tiger Woods, but first, here's uh, Dominique Foxworth, who was on Get Up this morning talking about this very thing. Who does he think? has a better chance of winning another championship. LeBron or Tom Brady? Here's what Foxworth said. I, th- I went back and forth on this one, but I think I got to go with LeBron because even though he's already in year 20, I feel like his game, he can extend that career. And Tom Brady has seven Super Bowls already. Like, Super Bowl wins already. I just, I, it's hard for me to imagine. I know that team is talented enough to do it again, but getting eight, that's like, all other franchises in football, I don't think any, or no, not I don't think, I know no one has eight. So Tom mm-hmm. Brady, just doing it again seems impossible. And LeBron could find a way to contribute on teams for the next five or six years and find a way into another championship. Foxworth this morning. What he says about LeBron is fair. What he says about Tom Brady doesn't make much sense. Right, just because we haven't seen it before. Ah, oh, there's no way somebody could win eight Super Bowls. We were probably saying the same thing a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, about trying to win seven Super Bowls. And you would think the one guy that could actually win eight is the guy, the one guy that's won seven. I thought that was a pretty poor reason 
The Saints, oh, no way can Tom Brady do it. It's just too unbelievable. How could this one guy win eight Super Bowls? Well, we never thought one guy could win seven either, and he's already done that. I think Tom Brady, of all the greats that are still out there playing of this current era that are soon to retire, I think he's the one that could still win before stepping away, even if he steps away after this upcoming football season. I still think he gives me the best chance to provide a championship than the others. Now, here was, uh, here was Tiger Woods talking after he finished up on Friday. Obviously, he did not play very well over the weekend. Here's what Tiger said after uh, he did not make the cut on Friday. I'm not retiring from the game, but I just don't know if I've, I will be physically able to play back here again when it comes back around. Uh, I'll play, be able to play future British Opens, uh, yes, but in you know, eight years' time, I doubt if I'll be you know, competitive at, at this level. Yeah, I don't think he will be. He already isn't all that competitive right now. Maybe he'll get healthier. Maybe he'll get better. But I think Tom Brady provides the best opportunity of any of these greats that are on their last leg. No pun intended. Maybe a bad uh, turn of phrase to use when considering Tiger Woods. But I think Tom Brady is the one that has the best chance to win again before finally stepping away. When we come back, Deshaun Watson, there are reports we may find out by the end of the week. We may. We also may not find out. But we may find out by the end of the week what the punishment will be for Deshaun Watson. But I think in all this, Deshaun, hindsight being twenty twenty, could look back, see what the Houston Texans did over the weekend, and maybe think, ah, maybe that's the route I should have gone as well. We'll get to that next. The lesson that could be learned by uh, or from the uh, Houston Texans. And we'll do that next. More Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spin lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Coming up, we may get a verdict this week on Deshaun Watson's punishment from the NFL. But in the meantime, what the Houston Texans did on Friday to take care of their part in the matter and why Deshaun, looking back, may have wanted to try to do the same. We'll catch up with Mike Yuva in about 10 minutes to talk about the uh, G.G. Jackson situation. Also, get ready for SEC Media Days, which begin, well, today. And for the Gamecock, Shane Beamer, he'll be speaking tomorrow. We'll, of course, react to that throughout the week. And we'll also begin our preview this week. Figure why not. Right, we're at the All-Star break for baseball. We have media days going on. We'll do a, a conference a day and get through the Power Five conferences this week. So we'll preview, and I'll give you my pick and rundown and breakdown of all the Pac-12 teams coming up next hour. We'll do a, a conference a day, working our way towards the SEC, because, of course, the SEC is the one that's most notable. We'll do that at the end of the week. We'll get to the ACC later on as well. We'll start with the Pac-12 later today. You know, the Houston Texans have been a punching bag in recent years, and probably rightfully so. They'll be one of the worst teams in the league on the field again this year. But I do think they got something right. And I think it's something Deshaun Watson could probably have learned from. The Texans settled their lawsuits with Deshaun's accusers over the weekend. And they put out a statement from their ownership, and part of it said, quote, we were shocked and deeply saddened when we first learned of the allegations against our then-franchise quarterback in March 2021. Our, although our organization did not have any knowledge of Deshaun Watson's alleged misconduct, we have intentionally chosen to resolve this matter. 
This is not an admission of any wrongdoing, but instead a clear stand against any form of sexual assault and misconduct. We hope that today's resolution will provide some form of closure to the parties involved, our fans, and the Houston community. As an organization, we will now turn our focus to the future and doing what we can to ensure respect for all. That was the statement put out by the Texans. And just like that, they made it go away. It's like a magic trick. They made their problem, their part of this problem, disappear. You won't hear about this with the Houston Texans. Training camp's about to begin. We're getting closer to the football season. College football begins in six weeks. The Texans, already a mess on the field, don't need this hanging over them. They don't need more issues off the field for that organization. They moved on from Deshaun Watson for a reason. This played a part of it. They're trying to distance themselves. They don't want this to drag on. So these lawsuits, right, they were uh, indicted or they were included by the accusers as well, and the Texans, the organization, said, all right, you know what? Let's just give them, uh, let's just, uh, give them uh, some sort of settlement, and let's make this go away. And they took care of it in a matter of weeks. By the time week one rolls around, you won't think once more about these lawsuits with the Houston Texans. You probably already forgot about it. You probably already forgot that the Texans were being dragged into all this as well until I just mentioned it a few moments ago. You probably didn't even realize this was happening. And yet for Deshaun Watson, we're going on right now 16 months and counting because the story is not going to go away. We're still waiting on the punishment from the NFL. Then he's going to have to sit out at least part of the season, maybe the whole season. And while he sits out, you can guarantee that anytime you tune into a Cleveland Browns game, you know what one of the biggest stories will be in that broadcast. And the broadcasters will reference it. And the idea that they brought in Deshaun Watson and he's unavailable, so you're going to hear about it all football season. And if the Browns say Deshaun is suspended for only eight games, six games, whatever, and then the Browns lose the division by one game or miss the playoffs by a game or two, and they're going to point back, it's going to be a talking point again at the end of the season and say, well, imagine if Deshaun was available the whole season. What could have happened? And then, even as we head into the offseason, that's when these lawsuits will actually play a role, the ones that are left. Nothing's going to happen with these four other lawsuits until the springtime, until after the football season. So once we get to next offseason, if those cases aren't settled in the meantime, we're going to hear more about it. And more information may come out, or at least uh, the tales from the two sides may come out. We may get more details between now and then, almost a year from now. It's going to go on and on and on. There are still four more cases that will continue on. Personally, Deshaun Watson could have settled early on and tried to save face. Put out a statement just like the Texans did, even if it's not entirely true, right? Even if they're actually hiding something, even if the Texans knew what was going on and what they said in that statement was factually inaccurate, it doesn't matter. We don't know any different, and we won't find out because they settled the cases, and the public can move on quicker. And for Deshaun, professionally, if these cases were all settled already, I imagine the NFL would have given him his punishment last year, right, if he settled the cases during last offseason. They could punish him last year. The suspension would be done, done with right now. He didn't want to play last year anyways. He could have been suspended for a full year if he wanted. Right? He didn't want to play for the Texans. And then he'd be good to go this year with his new team. And we wouldn't have to worry about this. And he'd be at training camp with that behind him professionally and ready to go with his new team and with the hopes of actually competing for a Super Bowl this year and getting ready for week one. And Deshaun is truly innocent in all this. And if he believes he did nothing wrong, if he wanted to clear his name, I understand. I respect that. But she ended up settling with 20 of the women anyways. Wouldn't have been better off to have done that a year ago instead of waiting 12 months before settling? Right, so in the process, while trying to prove your innocence, we assume, he hasn't proved his innocence just yet. He has lost in the court of public opinion, and he may also lose two years of his prime, depending on what the suspension will be for this year. 
We never like to accept blame for something we didn't do. I can understand that. And if Deshaun really feels like he's innocent in all this, right, he doesn't want to accept some sort of blame or admit uh, fault. Of course not. But sometimes it's just easier. And by settling, you're also not necessarily accepting the, the guilt or the blame of what you're being accused of. But sometimes, right, professionally, it's better if you take the fall for someone else, whatever the situation may be. Sometimes you just got to swallow the bullet and, uh, you know, take the punch because it'll be better for you in the long term professionally. Settling doesn't always mean guilt. It just means you want something to go away, like the Houston Texans. They settled over the weekend. doesn't necessarily mean they were part of this. They just they wanted it off their plate. Deshaun could have settled last summer. This would be behind us. He probably would have already forgotten about it by now. He'd be past his suspension. He'd be ready to play. He'd be forgiven. We probably wouldn't have had all the stories from the past 12 months written about it instead with more and more details that make him look bad, continually ruining his reputation. And instead, it's not going to go away. We're going to wait on the punishment here in the next couple of weeks. Then we're going to talk about it all football season while he's on the sidelines. And then we have the cases come up again in the offseason as they work towards some potential court case. The Texans, meanwhile, they just wipe their hands clean. They're done. You won't hear about this again. Pride, ego, sometimes they can get in the way. Right? In a marriage, sometimes you got to pick your battles. You can win the fight, but you'll be sleeping on the couch that night. And you'll wonder, like, well, was it really worth it? Sometimes... You'll say things during a fight to prove a point that you wish you could take back. And you made your point, but you think afterwards, like, yeah, but was it really worth it? Can't take those words back. She was very upset. I may have won the the battle, but certainly have lost the war. Sometimes it's better to just swallow your pride and say yes, dear. And I'm all for clearing your name and fighting for what is right. And assuming Deshaun is truly innocent in all this and he's trying to clear his name, I totally get it. But the question being, where has it gotten him? He settled 20 of the 24 cases anyways. At this point, he probably prefers to settle the other cases now, too. You could have done that a year ago. Instead, you may potentially miss two years from your football career. Your reputation has cratered with the public. If I was Deshaun, I'd be looking at what the Texans just did. They made their problem go away in in days. You're not going to think about it again. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, oh, shoot, maybe I did misread this situation. Maybe I misplayed this. Maybe that was my opportunity about a year ago. If I was in his situation, I felt like I was innocent. I would want to fight to clear my name as well. I always tell the story about a politician, I think it was in Rhode Island, who got dragged through the mud only to be proven innocent in some sort of fraud scheme. And as he left the courthouse, right, and they said, oh, aren't you happy? And he said, yeah, well, what office do I go to to get my reputation back now? Right? Accusations are enough to just ruin you. People won't pay attention to what actually happens after the accusations come. If I was in a situation where I was innocent and somebody was proven, uh, trying to um, uh, claim I did something I didn't, I'd want to clear my name as well. But as we look back for Deshaun, you ended up settling anyways. You may lose two years of your football prime. Your reputation's taken a big-time hit. You could have let this uh, made this all go away a year ago like the Texans just did. We'll catch up with Mike Yuva when we come back, talk about Gigi Jackson and SEC Media Days. It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Let's talk all things Gamecocks, and let's do so with Mike Yuva, who covers the Gamecocks for Gamecock Central. Get to him on Twitter at Mike underscore Yuva, U-V-A. He's on his way to Atlanta for uh, SEC Media Days, and he joins us now. Mike, good afternoon. How are you? 
I'm doing well, Luke, and I'm, I'm reminding myself I'm on the radio and to put the Boston away in me, you know, with people driving on the road. So uh, I'm going to do my best to make my mother proud and, and not drop any F-bombs uh, angry as well. <laughs> Perfect. We appreciate that. Whole, uh, wishing you uh, safe travels there on the way to Atlanta. appreciate you joining us. Uh, I, I do want to touch on a little bit on SEC Media Days, but – Let's first start with Gigi Jackson because we got that news last week. We talked about it here on the show Friday and then, you know, went off for the weekend and uh, maybe uh, uh, lost uh, focus on that. But we're waiting on news of, of Gigi Jackson moving forward here at the Gamecocks. My first question, because I know you and the guys at Gamecock Central have been all over this, and we talked about it last week. But, Mike, first off, how do we get to this point where we have Gigi Jackson decommitting and now looking like, we assume, heading towards the Gamecocks here in the next couple of weeks? Well, I mean, it goes back a couple months, and give big credit to our national our national reporter from RN3, Jamie Shaw, who's just been all over this story. The reality is, is this. If Frank Martin did not get fired, Gigi would have very likely been coming to South Carolina. When that happened, things changed a little bit. But as we continue to get closer and closer to where we are now, um, the opportunity to reclassify and be able to come play at South Carolina, a place that Gigi really wanted to come and play at, it became more of a possibility. So where we are right now is this, Scott. I mean, um, Luke, I say Scott, I talked to your coworker earlier. Yes. Where, we, where we are right now with all this is because of the Peach Jam and how big, of course, it is, as it is, Gigi wants to play in it. Now, we know that he is a rising senior. So on paper for this tournament, he is a junior. If he were to reclassify, if he were to reclassify before this tournament, which started yesterday, he would not be allowed to play in it. Because he has not reclassified, he is allowed to play in it. And why wouldn't you want to play there? You're going to have NBA scouts there. You're going to have G League scouts there. So what we've seen, and last year there were a handful of players that did this, they played in this tournament, and then they reclassified once the tournament was done. So I say all that because if you go to On3, the national prediction recruiting machine is saying that South Carolina has the best odds at just over 93% to land Gigi. But from a timing standpoint, if that were to happen, don't expect that to happen until as early as, I'd say, Sunday when the tournament concludes. So I mention all that because I'm sure there's some Gamecock fans that are like, okay, what's next? We heard him decommit last week. How much longer do we have to wait for this? I wouldn't expect anything to happen if it does with South Carolina until Sunday at the earliest. Yeah, that's good to know, and uh, we'll wait beyond that. About when it comes to the Gamecocks, you mentioned Frank Martin. He's obviously not there anymore. So what is it that you believe is the, the biggest driving force that could bring Gigi Jackson to South Carolina? Is it the location? Is it his family connection? Is it the new coach? Is it opportunity? What do you think is the biggest reason why he may end up with South Carolina? I think the biggest thing is just being able to stay close to home. Close to home, and then you would be naive. Now, we don't know the specifics, but you would be naive not to believe that NIL opportunities will be there, especially a local kid, number one player in the country. The NIL opportunities that could present themselves by staying home and, of course, just having a great career, whether it be one year or whatever the case may be, because we expect him to be a one-and-done if he came to USC, it would be there. So I think it's a, it's a combination of a couple things. Um, it's a perfect storm for South Carolina because, yes, you do have a new coach that has come in here, and even though he wasn't part of that original recruitment of Jackson as well as this other coaching staff, because you have Kerry Rich on staff, that helps. 
that helps a guy like Lamont Paris because the relationship with GP and his family has been big. But having a guy like Kerry Rich, who was there beforehand helping, even though he wasn't on staff with Frank, he's been able to build that relationship up with the family. That certainly helps out Lamont Paris and this coaching staff be able to at least get to a point where there is trust with family and there is this confidence level being able to say, hey, look, we go have our son play for him. We feel good about Lamont Paris. Talking about Gigi Jackson with Mike Yuva, who uh, him and the guys have been all over this at Gamecock Central. Um, you know, we've heard some people start to mention in recent days this idea about the G League, but that's never been a big part of the story when it comes to Gigi Jackson, the idea of going to the G League Ignite, or even if he wanted to go overseas for a year before going to the NBA, if we assume he will be one and done. Uh, do you think that the G League, is that part of the decision at all, or is he solely focused on he wants to play uh, in college? Uh, what, what do you imagine? Well, G League is definitely a possibility, and I think the best way to describe it is this. It's like the pretty girl that just broke up with her boyfriend and everyone knows about it. She's going into the bar, and every guy in there is looking at her. So with him going down to the Peach Champ, everyone knows that. So that's why you'll have the G League scouts that will come up and have those conversations with them. And even though, like I said, South Carolina, if he were to go to college and go that route, even though USC right now is the favorite, it can't count other teams. And I'm trying to say that to say, wait a minute, but in the world of NIL, I mean, you don't know what could be going on behind the scenes right now. So I don't say that because that is what's going to happen but he's going to be hearing from a lot of different people at Peach Jam this week. And I can only imagine that, even though we're on day two, that he's already been hearing from people. So I think the big thing is with him is being able to put himself in the best position to help himself live out those dreams of playing in the NBA. Because of what he was able to do in the tournament a couple weeks ago and the feedback, according to Jamie Shaw, that he got, following that tournament, it gave him that confidence level that, hey, you know what? Yes, I'm 17 years old. I'll turn 18 in December, but I'm feeling confident right now. I'm feeling good enough to be able to reclassify. But now it's also giving him that confidence of saying, hey, look, if we go out and have a good showing this week at the beach gym, maybe there's a good possibility of being able to make that jump even a little bit quicker by going to the G League. So I'm not saying that to discourage Gamecock fans. I still feel like it is very, very likely that he will go uh, to, to to USC and end up in Columbia, but there's always that possibility, especially when you're dealing with the 17-year-old kid. You can never count anything out. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, let's say he does wind up with the Gamecocks. When you look at the program where they are right now, first year of Lamont Paris, if you were to drop in Gigi Jackson to this program, what do you think realistic? I know we're so far away from basketball season, but what do you think like realistic uh, general expectations should be, should be or could be for the Gamecocks program with uh, one year of Gigi Jackson? I think in the short term, I mean, you're going to be looking at just the buzz. I mean, the reality of it is you have SoCon talent, and that's not trying to disrespect anyone that's on that roster right now, but you don't have proven SEC talent across the board. Yes, you do have some guys that played at USC last year. majority of those guys that didn't play in a lot of meaningful minutes. But at the same time, too, you have a lot of players that are trying to prove themselves in that conference. So I think adding Gigi more than anything – what you're going to do is you're going to bring that excitement back. You're going to speed that process up, hopefully just a little bit in the short term. Is that a team that makes the NCAA tournament? I don't know if I'm going to go as far as saying that. Um, maybe they could sneak on into the NIT, but maybe they could surprise some people, including myself, and make it into the NCAA tournament. So, yes, I think you'll get more wins with Gigi, but I think the bigger 
the bigger focal point is what it can do for you long term. And that was something that I recently wrote about on Gamecock Central is that it can help lay out a blueprint for other talented players that saying, hey, look, you can come to South Carolina and you can have success here. So the bigger, the biggest storyline would be by Gigi Cumming has nothing to do about postseason play or what happens from a win-loss standpoint. It's more so about Gigi going out there and being able to hopefully have that success to the point where he would be a lottery pick in 2023 so that Lamont Harris and his coaching staff, when they go at recruiting, they can point to Gigi and say, hey, look, that stigma that was created about, okay, South Carolina players, even a guy like Sandarius Thornwell goes on, has an incredible season his senior year, Final Four run, SEC MVP. He wasn't picked until around, what, the 48th overall pick. This would be an absolute game changer when it comes to recruiting. So that's the biggest thing. Gamecock fans will be some that will get more excited about, okay, hey, wins and It's Trust me, that's not what this is about. It's about being able to have a guy that you can point to and say, that's the blueprint. You can have success at South Carolina because Gigi Jackson proved that. Yeah, I agree with you there. We're talking about Mike Yuva, who's on his way to uh, SEC Media Days in Atlanta. So before we let you go, Mike, I do have to ask you, in regards to the Media Days, what are you most looking forward to this week? It could be Gamecock-related. It could be SEC-related. It could be food-related. Maybe you're looking forward to the varsity there in Atlanta. What are you most looking forward to as you head to SEC Media Days this week? Well, I mean, obviously time kind of took a little bit of that fire away and the fact that they both spoke in Destin at the coaches' meetings. It's not going to be the exact same, but I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that 21-year-old, 20-year-old college student at Kentucky, right, one of those, like, you know, non-Alabama or Texas A&M reporters to ask Nick Saban, like, for the 16th time, a question that he's already been asked 100 times, and it just gets him absolutely berated, and that will be that viral moment for the week. So Alabama, Nick Saban, they're also speaking tomorrow along with South Carolina. I am waiting for that moment. I don't want anyone to have their feelings turn. Or this or that. But you know what? Oh, man. I, I just want to see Saban just go off. Because you know it's only a matter of time. He's a ticking time bomb someone has. So I'm looking forward to that. And then aside from that, I'm looking forward to just being able to check out the College Football Hall of Fame. You know, this is the second time they're holding it here in Atlanta. I'm not really a fan of it being held in Atlanta outside of it. It's a little bit shorter to be able to get there from Columbia. I think it's a much better venue in Birmingham just because everything's so close together. This, you got to walk outside and this and that. But um, the College Football Hall of Fame, I mean, you can't argue. I mean, that's, that's really neat. They're going to have all the SEC displays up front, especially the Gamecocks on Tuesday. So for any fans making their way out there, hoping to get a glimpse of some of the players and coaches, if you head into the Hall of Fame, you'll be able to see some of that on display right when you walk in on Tuesday. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Last thing before we let you go is your road trip there. I know you're, uh, you know you're a former football guy, so you're in good shape, you're healthy, but what are the, uh, the road trip essentials for Mike Yuva? Whether it's a fast food stop or you stock up at the gas station, what do you have to have with you when you're on a long drive? You know, I'm contractually obligated to say that it's <laughs> awesome of Bojangles, so we can, we're getting some Bojangles. We've got the interns in the car right now. Uh, we'll provide them with a lunch. If it's, uh, hopefully there'll be a Bojangles that pops up. I know Kendall's in the back seat. I know that she's not the biggest chicken eater. I think she's more vegan or whatever the case may be. And she's blushing in the back seat. But um, you know, I'll just tell her that it's not. It's not. You know, it's not chicken. But we'll find. Some, we'll find a way. Kind of like a dog when you put the medicine inside. Now I say all this, she can hear. It's not like she's sleeping. But we'll figure something out. <laughs> 
Perfect. He's Mike Yuva from uh, Gamecock Central on Twitter at Mike underscore Yuva, and he's been a co-host here on ESPN Radio Charleston today. Mike, appreciate all the time and the insight today, and uh, wishing you safe travels and fun in Atlanta this week. Well, I appreciate all you guys. Take care. Hey, appreciate it. Pleasure's all ours. Mike Yuva on his way to SEC Media Days with the gang for Gamecock Central. We'll see what comes from SEC Media Days. We'll wait for that blow-up from Nick Saban. It's uh, officially talking season, and just like we did last week with big, the Big 12, we'll react to anything that comes out of the SEC this week there in Atlanta as the Gamecocks, Shane Beamer, and company will be speaking tomorrow. In the meantime, we'll wrap up Hour 1 when we come back. It's more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Appreciate the time. Last segment from Mike Yuva on his way to SEC Media Days, joining us to talk about all things G.G. Jackson and SEC Media Days. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston. However, you listen to your podcast or online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. Now, uh, Mike was on his way to Atlanta. I know earlier he and uh, Scott, earlier on the Scott Hamilton Show, talking about how uh, they're not the, the fondest of Atlanta. I'm not the biggest fan of Atlanta either. I'm not going to continue to bash it. They were doing that earlier. Now, Anderson, do you have uh, – uh, does your family come from Atlanta? Uh, yeah, I was born in Atlanta. and uh. Uh, Yeah, so uh lived there until I was eight. My dad lived there 10 or 15 years earlier before I was born, so yeah, yeah. Were you – are you a fan – I don't know how often you get back there now, but do you have fond memories? Are you pro-Atlanta? Oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of all the professional teams there, Braves, Hawks, Falcons, and uh, Georgia Tech. Grew up going oh. to those games a lot. Yeah, so it's sad right now, but, uh, you know, maybe they'll get it together at some point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And my thing with uh, – I've been to Atlanta a handful of times, just the traffic. Now, it's my same complaint around here. I just don't like traffic. I don't know anybody who does like traffic. There may be some people don't necessarily mind it, but you're just wasting time just sitting there in your car. And uh, I can have patience, but the one time I'm very impatient is when you're in your car. you got somewhere to go. And you're all backed up. And it's my I love the Charleston area. I love being here. But the one complaint, the only thing I complain about is just the traffic does not match the size of the area. Makes no sense, all this traffic around here. Infrastructure is not good enough. Same day with Atlanta. The traffic is terrible. But you go to any city. New York, obviously, terrible. L.A. is even worse. Awful. It's always the traffic. So I guess the main takeaway is just I'm not much of a city guy because of the traffic. Now, if you ever get to Atlanta, I know people always talk about, like, the varsity, right, in terms of more like a fast food place. And I had the varsity when the Citadel went and beat Georgia Tech a couple of years ago. And it was okay. It's kind of like the Beacon. Everybody told me, told me when you go to the Upstate, you got to try the Beacon. And I went there, and I love a good little kind of like hole-in-the-wall place. I'm not looking for anything too fancy. I love a grungy local area, a restaurant. Same idea with the Beacon. Like, yeah, it was okay. Yeah, it's kind of overhyped. Wasn't that great? That's similar with the varsity. I'll tell you, if you ever go to Atlanta, or if you're going there this week for SEC Media Days, the place that I do love the most, and if you haven't been, you have to try to get there, is Mary Max Tea Room. It's fantastic. Now, the problem is it's only open until like 9 o'clock, so it depends, right, what time you're getting out. 9 o'clock, and then as we talk about in the show, you never want to get in there too late when they're closing up the restaurant, so you have to kind of get in there like at 8 o'clock or earlier. 
which is fine if you're having a normal meal, right? But sometimes you're at a game or you're at an event, whatever, and they're not open late night. But Mary Max Tea Room is fantastic. It's uh, just southern fare, right? Great food. And they have, um, they just call her Ma. She comes around, she gives you a back rub while you eat. The owner of the restaurant. She's an older lady. She's like your grandmother. Very kind. She asks how you're doing. She che- And she goes around each person at the table. And she rubs your shoulders and rubs your back while you eat. It is phenomenal. She's such a sweet lady. The food is good. And when I was working for a certain uh, team before, every time we go to Atlanta to go play, we'd go every year, we'd always stop off there. Florida State, Leonard Hamilton, that's his spot. Florida State, every time they go play in the area, uh, you go play Georgia Tech, they always go to Merrimack's Tea Room. It is fantastic. best part is really just the back rub and the shoulder rub. You're eating some fantastic food, and you're getting the back rub while you're eating it too. And they don't charge you for that. It's great. Check out Mary Max Tea Room. When it comes to road trip essentials, I am a big just stop at the gas station and stock up. And that's where I get myself in trouble. It's the only time I really have soda. And I always get a candy bar as well, whatever I'm feeling. But I always need chocolate and I need sugar to help me get through a long drive. Not great. That's why I pack on a few pounds during the football season when we're traveling every weekend. And in terms of fast food, the people around here in this building love Crystal. That's the one place I'm blowing by, and I'm looking for something I can't normally get. Let me get some fast food at a place that isn't necessarily down the street from my home. Those are my road trip essentials. Hour two, coming up next, we'll talk about All-Star Week here for Major League Baseball. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll get ready for the Home Run Derby tonight, the All-Star Game tomorrow. We'll look at Major League Baseball's All-Star Week as we reach the unofficial midway point. Really, the midway point was about two weeks ago when teams reached game number 82. But we always split up the season with the All-Star Break, and the All-Star Break in baseball has arrived. We'll get to that coming up. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston. However, you listen to your podcast. And the podcast is also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. You can find the podcast there. You can always get in touch with the show over at charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. You can leave a comment for the show right there. You can get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Or you can always join the conversation on the phones, 843-721-9500 to give us a call. Hey, the Major League Baseball draft was last night. You probably weren't paying much attention. The problem with the draft for Major League Baseball, of course, is that these are you're drafting guys that probably aren't going to help the team for a few years. And a lot of them won't ever help the big league club. 
It's not like the NFL where you're excited because you get a star wide receiver in Jamar Chase. You could plug him in week one, and he could have a huge impact, and you buy his jersey, and you're looking forward to seeing him in a couple of months. If you're a Braves fan, you get excited over the draft picks last night, and it's like, all right, well, hopefully he develops into something. Hopefully he uh, joins the big league club years down the road. And then when they do, you, you rarely remember their origin story. When Austin Riley makes his debut, you don't, oh, yeah, this is the guy we drafted 25th overall in 2015 out of such you – know, you don't really remember it. You hear about him as he becomes a big minor league star, and he's a big – oh, this is the seventh prospect in our system. But you don't remember, like, draft day. So Major League Baseball's draft was last night. A couple of takeaways on that, because I'm sure you probably weren't paying a ton of attention. I'll say this. Major League Baseball, they did do a better job. They, they did this last year. They're doing it again this year. They did it last night where – they moved the draft to this All-Star week. There's nothing else going on, right? This is considered the slowest week of the sports calendar. It's when a lot of people would take vacation time. You'll hear a lot of people in my industry complaining about how slow things are, makes our jobs a little harder. That's okay. It's still better than a lot of other things we could be doing for a career. But you'll hear a lot of complaining this time. There's nothing going on. There's no sports to watch. What are we supposed to talk about? Come up with some things. There's plenty going on in the sports world at all times. But this is always considered the slowest week in the sports calendar. So I think it's smart. Major League Baseball moved their draft. They did it last year and now moving forward. And they're going to parlay it you know, with their home run derby and their all-star game. And it was out in L.A. where the rest of the festivities will be. And it's part now of their all-star week. I like this idea. It was actually on ESPN last night. That's not normally the case. Usually it'd be like on MLB uh, Network, if anything. And I remember, I'm old enough, I remember years ago, because I've always been a baseball geek, and I always pay attention to prospects. And just if you're a college baseball fan, you want to see where guys go, I remember I used to have to just follow it online. It, was, it wasn't even on TV. You go like to MLB.com, and this was going back, you know, 10, 15 years. And even back then, websites weren't necessarily what they were now. I mean, it wasn't the, the dark ages. But wasn't quite as streamlined as things are even today where, like, Twitter, you could get every pick. And so you're constantly refreshing, like, MLB.com. Like, Ooh, who was drafted? you got to wait, like, 10 minutes. They finally put the next pick up there. It was actually on ESPN. I was flipping the channels last night. and Oh, wow, was that, I was not anticipating it being on ESPN. I watched a little bit of it last night. Usually I just follow it on my phone anyways. But I think it's a good move. The one downside is now for these guys getting drafted, they usually get right into the minor leagues and play this first year. Well, now here we are. They just got drafted. It's going to be a, they're not going to start playing games this week. They still have to negotiate the contracts. Then you got to assign them to a certain place. They got to get there. Everything. Point being, by the time the guys get settled in, minor league baseball is just about over. So you don't get that half season that you normally would out of your prospects if you're the Atlanta Braves. You don't get to get see a little glimpse of these guys. This year, And maybe it's better off to just start fresh next year. They come to spring training. They start the season. You don't have to go from high school ball to, to uh, the minors. You don't have to go from college ball to maybe a summer league to the minors, and now you're tacking on extra innings. Maybe it's better off for the players and the team, but you do lose a little time. That's the downside to it. But I like that Major League Baseball is trying to turn their draft into a, an event the best that they can. A couple of just quick tidbits because, again, I don't know how much the MLB draft really resonates. Uh, but a couple of things that did stand out or a couple of highlights from what happened. I mean, the top two picks were second-generation players where you have Matt Holliday's kid go number one, and then you had Andrew Jones's kid. That may resonate around here. He went number two overall. 
And then you had uh, Kamar Rocker go number three to the Rangers. Remember the whole thing last year? He didn't sign with the Mets. He had the arm issues. He goes third overall. Ended up working out pretty well for him. People were surprised he went that high. We'll see if those arm issues are okay. And he's good to go with the Rangers, who got his teammate lighter last year. But it's the first time ever that the first two picks in the draft were kids of former big leaguers. In fact, it's the first time ever that a former big leaguer's son went first overall since Ken Griffey Jr. 35 years ago. Those are the only two times where a second-generational player, or third, or fourth, right, whatever, kid of a big leaguer, was drafted first overall, was Griffey Jr. and Matt Holliday's son last night, who went number one to the Orioles. I think it's, uh, what's it, Jackson Holiday. By the way, they showed him, they interviewed him on ESPN. That kid looks so young. Now, he's drafted out of high school. And I think every generation or even every grade every year, the kids look younger and younger. Maybe that's just me becoming older and older. But this kid, he's going to be a perfect, he's going to sign for millions of dollars. He looks like he, if I saw him walking down the street, I would think he was 13 years old. He looks so young. He's got a, a bit of a deep, when he talks, he's got a bit of a deeper voice. He sounds older when he talks. He's got some like good sized arms, right? But his face, he looks so, he's got a baby face, Matt Holiday's kid. It's wild that he's the number one pick. He's going to sign for millions of dollars. The Orioles, their fan base is all hopeful he's the next star. He looks like he can't even drive yet. He went first. Andrew Jones's kid went second. And then you got Carl Crawford's kid. If you remember him in the big leagues, his son is a big-time prospect. You may recall the 2002, let me remember correctly, right, 2002 World Series, Giants-Angels. And uh, was it Jeff Ken or Rich Aurelia? Somebody had to save the Bat Boy from getting trampled at home plate. Dusty Baker's kid who almost got run over. Uh, play at the plate. Anyways, he's getting drafted this year, if that makes you feel old. That little kid in the World Series 20 years ago, a little Bat Boy. All right, he's a uh, lighter, got drafted last year. Uh, the Blue Jays have all sorts of kids. I think baseball is the sport with the most second generational players of any sport. And I don't know why that is. We're supposed to come up with theories in this job and strong opinion. I really don't know. I, I don't know. Baseball, for whatever reason, more so than basketball. Or if, I know we have the Mannings. I know we're hearing about Arch Manning this time of year. But I feel like baseball has more of these kids of a former big leaguer than the NBA or the NFL. I don't know if the data backs that up. That's just how it feels. And the Blue Jays, right, have Craig Biggio's kid, and they have Dante Bichette's kid, and they have Vladimir Guerrero's kid. And they used to have Clemens' kid in the minor leagues. They all played together in the same team. Uh, it's crazy. Second generational talents in Major League Baseball. And I don't know why that is. I went to college with Mariano Rivera's kid. Quick story. Mariano Rivera Jr. was the son. And he came. He was He's younger than me, so I was already at the school. He came to play in the baseball team, but he was a preferred walk-on. He wasn't that great, especially compared to his father. I mean, most kids are not as good as their father and we always hold them to those expectations. It's unfair. We were talking about this with Arch Manning last week. So Mariano Rivera Jr. is also a pitcher, right-handed pitcher, and he comes to, uh, to school to come be a preferred walk-on. And it wasn't a great baseball program, so that told you about his options. He really didn't have any scholarship opportunities. Long story short, uh, he ends up getting kicked out of the school pretty quickly and off the baseball team for some things he wasn't supposed to be doing. He was never that great anyways, and that was the end of Mariano Rivera Jr. But it was always cool to see Mariano himself come onto campus, and you would see this. He would drive like a different car every time. You'd see this beautiful sports car coming down the, the middle of campus. It was called the, the road that we have 
we had a small campus where I went to school. You had really one main road, and they were so clever. It was called New Road because it was a new road that was created. So they just called it New Road. And so when you saw like a nice sports car come down New Road in the middle of camp, everybody would stop and be like, "Who is this?" And it'd just be Mariano, and he just park on campus right next to uh, like a dorm building. And I ran into him I think like three times on campus. The first time was the official visit. Word got out, and everybody was following him around camp. But otherwise, I was walking to class one day, just walked past Mariano. I was like, oh, there he is. And he was an incredibly nice guy. His son didn't really like the attention so much. But the father, Mariano Rivera, was very courteous, would stop and talk to He was very nice. I'm a Red Sox fan. I hate the Yankees. Mariano tormented us for years, but I couldn't dislike him. Not once I met him. He was very friendly, very nice, always smiling, good guy. His kid uh, got himself in some trouble. Now, he didn't make it to the big leagues, but another one of you know these second-generational guys. Uh, I think baseball has more of them than any other sport, and I have no idea why. I don't have a theory. The other highlight from last night's draft is that four of the first five picks in Major League Baseball were African-American, and that's important because uh, this has been a talking point for years that fewer African-Americans are playing baseball, at least at a professional level, than ever before. So that was encouraging to see last night as well that some of the best players in this draft class are African-American, uh, because I think it's um, percentages may down, be down to single digits at this point. Uh, but it's uh, at an all-time low, and that's been something that people have been trying to, through different programs, have been trying to get those numbers up of having more uh, African-Americans uh, make it to the big leagues or just professional baseball in general, play baseball growing up. And the uh, only other things I'll say, the Braves, uh, if you weren't following, if you're a Braves fan, they drafted, what, three high school pitchers? Alex Anthopoulos has never drafted a high school pitcher in the first round that he signed. And they went three for three last night. So that's odd. That's a change in philosophy. In his drafts with the Blue Jays and then with the Braves. Only twice prior did he draft a pitcher out of high school in the first round, but he didn't sign either one. The Braves went all in on high school pitchers last night. So I don't know what was going on. That's a, a complete 180 in philosophy for Alex Anthopoulos. High school pitchers, if you look at the percentages, they have the, they're have they the biggest long shot. High school hitters have a better chance of making it to the big leagues than high school pitchers. College players, of course, have the highest chance of making it than you know, you're banking on a 17-year-old coming out of high school. But high school pitchers are the riskiest. And I imagine that's why Alex Anthopoulos did not draft one in the first round that he signed ever before until potentially this year. High school catchers are another one you want to try to – high school catchers, it's hard. Uh, they're the riskiest uh, demographic as well, along with pitchers. And my other rules would be college hitters. If they strike out a bunch, if they strike out more than they walk, if they're striking out over 20% of the time, I'm staying away from those guys as well because those numbers are not going to get better at the professional ranks. Like in football, they always say completion percentage is not going to get better. If you're a quarterback completing fewer than 60% of your passes in college, you're not going to complete enough passes in the NFL. The game speeds up. Defensive players are better. Your completion percentage is not going to improve. In baseball, it's similar. If you're striking out a lot in college, I mean, the pitching is so much better in uh, the professional ranks. And I know nowadays, right, we don't worry about strikeouts as much. But if you got a guy striking out a bunch in college, even if he's hitting home runs, uh, I would be concerned about that because uh, once you get to the professional ranks, that number's only, you're only going to strike out more. That's a bit of a red flag for a hitter. So anyways. Hey, we have the Home Run Derby tonight. We have the All-Star Game tomorrow in Major League Baseball. You know, they added Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera to the All-Star Game tomorrow night. They even added Albert Pujols to the Home Run Derby tonight. Now, I've been waiting to talk about this until we actually reach this point. 
But when the uh, when Rob Manfred of Major League Baseball made this announcement, this became a bit of a divisive topic. A lot of people were debating about this in the sports industry. Is this good or not? If you're unfamiliar, Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred instituted a rule where the commissioner, he can add a player on each team as some sort of like, a, you know, a veteran that you put them into the All-Star game. So he chose Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera are going to represent, you know, tonight in the uh, or tomorrow night in the All-Star game, even though they're undeserving of the honors. And I'll be honest, you could call me a wet blanket old man yelling at the clouds. I don't like this idea. They're not All-Stars. If you want to bring them to the game and honor them before the game, sure, that's great. But now, when you look back on that baseball card, we're giving them an extra All-Star game just because they're at the end of their career. I think it devalues the whole thing. So I'm not a fan. You put Pujols in the All-Star or in the uh, Home Run Derby tonight. I keep confusing those phrases. You put Pujols in the Home Run Derby tonight. Why? It's a waste of time. He's the biggest long shot tonight, as you would imagine. His odds are like plus 2,500. Peter Alonso's plus 200. Pujols isn't going to compete. I mean, what are we doing here? I think the Home Run Derby is going a little too far as well. He's had a great career. He's going to retire. And it happens every year. We don't need to put these guys in the Home Run Derby and make them honorary all-stars and play in the game, not necessary. I think it waters down the whole thing for two events that are already becoming less popular over the years. You don't care so much about the home run derby and the all-star game as you used to, and now we're just throwing these guys in because they're going to retire soon? Who cares? They're not all-stars. They had their chance. They've been all-stars in the past. They had great careers. We don't need to include them this year. But it's an interesting... uh, Topic in regards to where Major League Baseball is. I think this is kind of part of the issue for Major League Baseball. I think you should be instead building up those younger stars that are going to have to carry things moving forward without Pujols and Cabrera because they're not big names in the sport anymore. Albert Pujols has been, you know, he hasn't hit his weight in years. I think you need to promote the younger guys that are the new stars of the sport moving forward. Now, maybe a few more people are going to tune in tomorrow because Albert Pujols, and it's a good marketing ploy to get fans to tune in, but this is kind of the problem with Major League Baseball is that it's all about the past, a little too old, the average fan, older than the other sports. We're focusing on players that are you know, older and on their way out instead of these young stars. You, as a baseball fan, may be more familiar with Albert Pujols than Julio Rodriguez, a talented rookie for the Mariners. I think this kind of speaks to the issue of Major League Baseball. The Home Run Derby, the All-Star game, not as popular as they once were. Uh, the Home Run Derby, I think it's just because we see home runs all the time. It's kind of been there, done that. You know, kind of like the dunk contest eventually jumped the shark. Home Run Derby has uh, also jumped the shark at this point. And the All-Star game is not as popular for a number of different reasons. Uh, I don't think it helps when you add Pujols and Cabrera. Because of how big the rosters are and guys dropping out, we have had 80 players added to the All-Star game this year. Total. Think about that. It's 10% of the league has been named to the All-Star team. Talk about watered down. That's ridiculous. Because you have a guy like Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, they just pitched over the weekend. They can't pitch tomorrow night. So they're All-Stars, but they're not going to play in the game, so you replace them. We have gone up to over 80 guys, one way or another, have been named to the All-Star game this year. All right, that's crazy. Ridiculous. Too much. But the All-Star game used to be special. You know, when Pete Rose was taking out Ray Fossey, and tomorrow, because we do a top 10 list every Tuesday, we'll do the 10 most uh, memorable moments from uh, the All-Star games over the years. But that was a big deal. Why would you do that in an All-Star game? Because these leagues, you wanted to win. As a fan, you wanted your league to win. Back before interleague play. And even if you go way back before free agency. 
but when players weren't moving around all that much. And the only time they ever play one another would be in the World Series or at the All-Star Game. And they'd actually be wearing their own jerseys, and they'd be out there, and it was really cool. And the All-Star Game was a real thrill. Not so much anymore. Guys move around. You have interleague play every night in baseball. We see them play with one another and against one another all the time. The other thing, too, is that games weren't as accessible back then. So the All-Star Game, if you lived in a certain city, and again, no interleague play, it may be your only opportunity to see somebody going you know, far enough back. Nowadays, I have the MLB extra innings. I can watch all the games from my phone you know, in the, in the bathroom, anywhere in the world, whenever I want. And plus with interleague and free agency, guys moving around, it's just not as big of a thrill. Back then, the leagues were separate. They had separate offices and commissioners. They had separate umpires. The teams never played except in the World Series. All-Star game really used to mean something. I remember even when I was growing up, I would go to sleepaway camp, and one year in particular, it was uh, during the week of the All-Star game, and I was disappointed I was going to miss the All-Star game. I always looked forward to it. It was like appointment television. I remember going on vacation with a buddy's friend this time of the year. And we knew, hey, the All-Star game's tomorrow night. we got to be at the TV. We're going to watch it. I don't know what else you had planned for this vacation, but Tuesday night, we want to watch the game. And the All-Star game used to be a real thrill. Now, like, I really don't care. I'll, I'll tune in here and there tomorrow night in the Home Run Derby tonight. I'll, I'll keep one eye on it. I don't really care. But I think it's interesting. When you look at sports that are most popular and you look at their lead-ins, right? Lead-in is very important. That's why when Seinfeld was doing very well, they would try different shows. Seinfeld would lead into, like, Friends and everything. Right? When you have a good TV show, back when cable TV was a big thing, or in that case, network TV, but back when, you know, it wasn't about streaming, you needed a good lead-in keep the audience around. Same idea with these sports. Problem is, when you look at the sports and what they have as their lead-ins, I think that's part of the issue. What's the least popular of the four main sports in this country? Hockey, the NHL. And what's their lead-in? Now, you could say minor league hockey. I know we have the Stingrays here, and they do a good job. But how closely are you paying attention to the AHL or the ECHL or even college hockey or international hockey because a lot of these guys come from other countries? And you never hear about that stuff. Major League Baseball is probably third on that list in popularity. And around here, you may love college baseball, but nationally, college baseball doesn't do great. And I love minor league baseball, but again, nationally, minor league baseball doesn't move the needle. How often do you see a game on national TV? Right? You don't. It's great for your community, and you love the minor league team you have in the area, but you don't even know the players. You go there for the hot dogs and the great entertainment and the family uh, fun at a good price. Then you get to NBA is the second most popular sport. And, yeah, college basketball does a pretty good job. March Madness gets more viewers than most other sporting events. And then the NFL is the most popular sport. And, well, college football is right there with them. College football may be 1B nowadays. And we could have a chicken and the egg conversation uh, about that. right? What came first? Football's popularity, the NFL's popularity, and that helped make college football more popular. Or do these lead-ins play a role that college football, as that increasingly becomes more and more popular, so too does the NFL because of it? You want to watch these guys in the NFL? When you look at the sports that are doing the best of the four major sports in this country, and you look at those lead-ins, the NFL, the NBA, they have the best, Major League Baseball, NHL, not so much, and those are a couple of sports that are struggling right now. Hey, when we come back, uh, one last thing that I want to get to with the uh, Home Run Derby tonight is Ronald Acuna's participation. If you're a Braves fan, are you pleased that Acuna will be participating tonight? We'll get to that next. More Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio.
It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Hey, we have the Home Run Derby uh, going on tonight. Ronald Acuna will participate. He goes up against um, Peter Alonzo in the first round. Alonzo's trying to become the first three-peat champion in Home Run Derby history. And he and Acuna squared off against one another uh, the last time Acuna was in the Home Run Derby in 2019. So we'll see how that goes tonight for uh, Acuna. You know, there's a concern, and the numbers actually do back it up. But there's a concern about guys who participate in the Home Run Derby. And it doesn't impact everybody. But the concern is that it kind of screws up your swing. Now, probably less so in today's baseball because guys are swinging for the fences all the time, and we talk about launch angle and everything. That's just part of the game. So you're not really altering your swing. A lot of these guys are not altering their swing a whole lot, I assume. But even just the fatigue, the tiredness, right? And it sounds crazy. Like, how tiring is that? You'd be surprised. If you go out there, and I've I've covered some home run derbies in the minor league level. And I'll talk to guys afterwards who are doing it for the first time, and they'll say that. Like, wow, I'm much much more tired than I thought I'd be. And that'd be after the first round. Uh, It can be tiresome to go in there and take big hacks like that one after another and do it for a few rounds, especially if you go and win the championship. So there are concerns like, "Ah, I don't know if I want my player participating in the home run derby. It's going to affect their second half of the season. Now, for Acuna in 2019, it actually had the opposite effect. He played better after the All-Star break. His home run percentage increased, his OPS increased, his slugging increased. He, he was just fine. He got better afterwards. But if you look at the numbers over the, the course of time in the history of the Home Run Derby, and again, maybe it's not as impactful today as it once was. But if you look, players that participate in the Home Run Derby, their home run percentage and their OPS, which is the combination of slugging and on-base percentage, on average, it drops second half of the year. Meanwhile, for the guys who did not participate in the Home Run Derby, on average, their numbers actually increase second half of the year, home run uh, percentage and OPS. So history tells us, and the numbers tell us, that those that don't participate in the Home Run Derby are set to get even better in the second half, where those who do participate in the Home Run Derby, they'll see their numbers drop maybe slightly, but still go in the wrong direction second half of the year. That's the basis of the the idea or, or fear of, I don't know if I want my guy participating in the Home Run Derby. Then when it comes to Ronald Acuna specifically, you know, he's coming off, uh, he's still coming off an injury, hasn't been great this year, has been struggling of late, and I would be concerned as well. I don't know if I want him going in the Home Run Derby this week and tonight and going up against Peter Alonso. Maybe it's better to just take a day off. I mean, he is an all-star, so you know, you'll see him tomorrow anyways. But sometimes maybe it's better to just uh, have a couple days off, clear the mind a little bit, not focus on trying to hit home runs. Instead, focus on getting your swing back together and having a good second half of the season. Because he's got enough stuff going on where he's not playing great right now. He's been struggling a little bit. Still coming back from an injury, I'm sure. Continuing to get healthier and healthier. I don't know if uh, right away I want him to jump back into the home run derby this year. Statistically, and the numbers suggest, right, guys do not do as well second half of the year as they do first half. Now, for Acuna, he was just fine in 2019. Maybe it's something like this that will actually get him going. But I don't want to make uh, you know mountain out of molehill. I'm not telling you that Acuna is suddenly going to uh, become a terrible player. But if I was a Braves fan, I, I don't, I don't know. It'd be fun. It's going to be fun to watch him tonight, I'm sure. But I'd be a little concerned as well at the same time about his uh, participation in said derby because it can have a neg- negative impact on guys. And uh, already Acuna isn't having the best year to begin with. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Somebody asked who the Braves drafted to begin with. We were talking about the draft a little bit. 
last segment. The Braves had the 20th selection. They took Owen Murphy out of uh, high school in Illinois, who is both a shortstop and a pitcher. And um, he was drafted 20th. He's a two-way player. And he originally said when talking to the media that the Braves told him he could start out as a two-way player, and then the Braves reiterated that uh, he will be a pitcher. So that was their first pick, and they picked uh, 35th in the draft last night. They took J.R. Ritchie, another pitcher out of high school in Washington, um, who was the number 52 prospect according to Baseball America. Has a really good fastball, can already throw about 97 miles an hour. Then in round two, they uh, drafted Cole Phillips, a pitcher out of high school in Texas, 57th overall. And then uh, drafting 76th overall, they took uh, Blake Burkhalter out of Auburn who is a pitcher and expected to be a starter. So they went heavy on the pitchers. Tim Hudson was uh, Burkhalter's pitching coach there. So there's that connection. But the Braves took four pitchers and their first three all out of high school, which can be a risky thing, but that's the direction the Braves went in last night. Now, Anderson, when it comes to uh, this week, are you into the home run derby and the all-star game at all? Do you pay attention to uh, these all-star festivities for baseball? Yeah, I like them. I, uh, you know, I'm kind of like you as where it's kind of gone down a little bit and mm-hmm. how much I, uh, you know, care about it. But uh, it is fun, especially when you got uh, got a guy like uh, Ronald Acuna in there at the home run derby. Uh, it's uh, kind of unfortunate he got matched up with Pete Alonzo in the first round. But, yeah, it'll be fun to watch, and uh, I hope it doesn't really mess with the swing very much. So, yeah, it'll be fun, though. You have more interest in the Derby than the All-Star game or the All-Star game over the Derby? I think the Derby, and it yeah. used to be the All-Star game when it you know, would decide home field in the World Series. Right. Um, I thought that was cool, but I, I understand why they did away with it. So right as of now, it's a home run Derby for me. You like that idea. You liked uh, putting something on the line. It was cool just because it was the only one where you know, you'd have like a real incentive to go out and win. And so you got a bunch of good All-Star baseball games out of that. So um, yeah, that, that used to be my favorite uh, All-Star festivity out of all of them. So yeah, but uh, I, I kind of like the home run derby a little better now. I didn't like that idea, but I, I understood why Yeah, why they did it to get more juice in that game and to have a rooting interest. And it came after uh, 2002, they had a tie in the All-Star game. It went to extra innings. That was the year that, uh, if I remember correctly, that was the year Torrey Hunter robbed Barry Bonds of a home run in uh, Milwaukee, uh, which is the big highlight. And it was in Milwaukee, which is Bud Selig. That's his town, and he was the commissioner, and it was kind of embarrassing for him that we got two extra innings, and the teams kind of ran out of pitchers, and the managers were like, all right, well, let's just end the game. And it ended a tie, and Bud Selig did not like that. And so he said, all right, we're going to put something on the line, so we're not going to have any more ties. And, of course, then we went through those few years where it accounted for home field advantage in the World Series, which I think thought was kind of – I understood the idea. I thought it was kind of silly, but nonetheless. Especially years prior because – there were different rules. Nowadays, it may not be as impactful. Obviously, just home field advantage for Game 7 or more games at home than on the road. But back then, when I say back then, really just three-plus years ago, uh, when the AL would have a DH and the NL wouldn't, right, that made home field even more important in the World Series. Nowadays, they're both using DHs, so at least the on-the-field product is the same for the two teams. It's just about the, uh, the fan base that you're playing in front of, whether you're at home or on the road. Favorite all-star game, uh, which sport does the best all-star festivities, in your opinion? I think it's baseball still. Oh. I, I still like baseball. Obviously, the Pro Bowls, you know, nobody nobody really. I think that's the at the bottom of the of the three, uh, four, I guess, if you include hockey. I've never really paid much attention to that, though. But um, 
Yeah, I like how the uh, MLB does their stuff. Uh, the NBA's isn't bad, but they've added some kind of weird, unusual things lately. Uh, skills competition's kind of weird, but um, they do a pretty good job, too. But uh, especially how they changed the uh, All-Star game to, uh, what was it, two years ago? They had yeah. a really good, really good All-Star game. I forget what they put on the line, but um, yeah, that was that's been getting a little bit better. But uh, I, I still go with baseball. I think interesting. All right, so big couple of days for for you and baseball here. Yeah, the Elam ending in, in the NBA where you add twenty four points to the leading score, and whichever team you don't play, you know, a timed fourth quarter, it's first team to get to X number of points wins the game. They've done that last two years, and I think yeah, I agree. It's been fantastic. Uh, makes the NBA All Star game really interesting in that fourth quarter. Personally. I think the NBA All-Star Game is the best. The Pro Bowl is the worst. The Pro Bowl takes away what football actually is. I mean, they're playing like two-hand touch out there. It's horrendous. It's unwatchable. I don't pay attention to the NHL either, but my hockey friends really love the All-Star Game. And if you ever follow it, a lot more offense and a lot more goals in the All-Star Game. And they love that. The NBA, same idea, a lot more points. They're scoring almost 200 points, and they get the highlight alley-oop dunks and everything, shooting threes from half court and just showing their ability. So I think football, their all-star game goes in the wrong direction where it's worse than the actual product. The NHL, if you're a fan of offense, well, it's better than a normal hockey game. There's more offense. Same with the NBA. If you just love watching dunks and threes and highlights and watching a lot of points score, it's better than a normal basketball game. Baseball is right in the middle because you can't do anything about baseball unless you want to put, like, trampolines out there and, you know, make it like a miniature golf course. Baseball is just baseball. So baseball is in the middle. The all-star game is just like any other baseball game which, if you're a baseball fan, may not be a bad thing. But the NBA and the NHL become more offensive and a little bit different than what you normally see. The NFL is worse than what you normally see when it comes to the Pro Bowl. And baseball just is constant. It's just baseball. They're out there playing a game. It's just different in the sense that guys are only going to pitch an inning and you're going to get a bunch of substitutions and there's nothing on the line. But the home run derby's tonight, all-star game tomorrow. Let's see if anything noteworthy. We'll see if Peter Alonso can become the first to win three straight home run derbies. He'd be my pick. He's plus 200. You can uh, double your money if you bet on him. I think he wins again tonight. When we come back, we're going to preview all five of the Power Five conferences in college football this week as media days uh, continue. We'll do the Pac-12 when we come back. I'll let you know the best teams in the Pac-12 this year and give you my picks for the upcoming season. More Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. I'll carry you home tonight. Oh, we are young. So let's set the world on fire. We can go brighter What's going to happen in the Pac-12 this year? I'll let you know in just a few moments here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. We begin our conference breakdowns this week with media days going on. The Big 12 last week, the SEC begins today, every other conference uh, going on this time of year. It's talking season. And this, as I said earlier, right, this is the slow week, the slowest week of the sports year. So what better time than now with the media days and nothing else, uh, no sports actually being played this week? What better time than now to preview the upcoming football season? College football is about six weeks away. So we're going to do one conference a day for the Power Five. We start today with the Pac-12 because right, you want to build up to the best. We finish with the SEC on Friday. Pac-12 is the bottom of the five Power Five conferences. 
and we'll do one conference per day. The ACC will be mixed in there in the middle of the week. We'll finish with the SEC at the end of the week, and we start with the Pac-12 today where I will go through uh, both divisions. I'll give you my standings and a quick rundown of each team and the best teams in the Pac-12 this season. It starts our conference preview for the upcoming college football season. We'll break down the Pac-12. Now, you may be saying, hold on, this isn't the Pac-12 theme song. Well, I implore you to find a better college football theme than this one. It's the one we always use around here for any sort of college football music bed, and we're going to use it for every conference this week. And if you're the Pac-12 and you don't like it, tough luck, become the SEC. It's the best theme around for the best conference. Pac-12. The South is certainly much more interesting than the North. Just like every other conference, there's one division better than the other, and in the Pac-12, it's the South. Let's start from the bottom, work our way towards the top. In the South, I think Arizona will be the worst team. They're 1-23 in their last 24 games, so I'm not going out on a limb here. Their only win last year was against a COVID-depleted Cal team that didn't have all their guys travel. That's it. That's their only win, last 24 games. I do think they'll be improved, though. You have a second year now of uh, Jed Fish as the head coach. You get the quarterback coming back. And last year, they weren't great, but they did have one, uh, pardon me, four one-possession losses. And they had two losses in conference where they actually had more yards than the other team. So they had some tough losses that could have been wins. Maybe a couple of those will become a win in year two of Jed Fish, quarterback back, new coach. Uh, I think he's a better coach than Kevin Sumlin. Arizona may be better than 1-11 like last year, but they're still the worst team in the South. In fact, they're probably the worst team in the entire Pac-12. One of the worst teams in all of the Power 5, I would go as far as uh, to say. I put Colorado right ahead of them in fifth. Uh, Colorado won't be great this year, but they have five conference games at home. They get their quarterback back, and Carl Durrell has done a good job. They're 8-10 in his two years there after he stepped in in a tough spot, you know, at COVID and the Pac-12 wasn't even going to play games, and he was hired late in the process. They've been pretty much 500 his first two years. He's done a good job. Colorado could be a tough out, right? They may give you a dogfight each Saturday, but they won't win a ton of games. Arizona State, I put fourth. They fell apart as the year went on last year, and they've had some issues off the field. Now they lost their quarterback from a year ago. They've lost coaches from the last couple of years who are jumping ship because Arizona State, they're being investigated. We're waiting on some sort of outcome because they were doing things they weren't supposed to during the COVID shutdown. Herm Edwards, I think, is on the hot seat at this point. He got off-field issues. I don't like Arizona State. I just think they're better than Colorado and Arizona. But I think there's a clear difference between the top half of the South and the bottom half. Arizona State, Colorado, Arizona, I don't think they'll be very good this year. These next three teams I do think will be pretty good. And that's Utah, USC, UCLA, and I put them in that order. I think UCLA will finish in third. I think this is a big year for Chip Kelly. I think he still has something to prove there. Now, look, they won their final three games last year by an average of 27 points per game. So they finished last year really strong. They get their quarterback back. And the biggest thing for UCLA, they don't have much of a home field advantage, but they do get Utah and USC at home this year. So the schedule breaks for them as well this season. UCLA will be intriguing. I think their win total in Vegas is eight or eight and a half. I think they go over that. I think UCLA could be a, a could have a pretty good year. Problem is, I really like the other two teams in the South, USC and Utah. Now, I put Utah number one ahead of USC because I think for the Trojans, 
I know they have a bunch of talent on paper, but I think they have too many moving parts. They're trying to, it's like a puzzle they're trying to piece together on the fly with everybody coming in from different schools and a new coach and a new staff and trying to learn on the fly. I trust Utah more because Utah, they won the conference already last year, almost beat Ohio State in the Rose Bowl, and now this year they return 14 starters from that team. They bring back their quarterback. They bring back their running back. The coaching staff is back. They get USC at home, and I'm going to take my chances with Kyle Whittingham, who's been there for about 15 years, compared to Lincoln Riley, who's been there for one year. And while Caleb Williams is a really good quarterback at USC, Cameron Rising at Utah is probably the next best quarterback in the Pac-12. So I don't think there's a huge gap at quarterback like there is for USC and other schools in the conference. And I also think coaching for this first year, Utah may have the advantage because of the continuity. USC, they're just trying to learn on the fly. Kyle Winningham's a really good coach. I think Utah wins the South. I think they win the Pac-12. USC finishes in second. Now that takes us to the North, which is certainly less intriguing. I think Washington State finishes in last. They're just not a good program. In fact, most of the North I don't think is all that great, certainly the bottom half. Washington State, they have 10 starters coming back from last year but lost their quarterback. They were a very turnover-lucky team last year. That's going to regress to the mean. Washington State will finish in last. I put Cal in fifth place. They got a head coach that's probably on the hot seat. They only bring back eight starters, fewest in the conference. They lost their quarterback. They, too, had some turnover luck last year that's going to regress to the mean. I think Cal will be worse than last year. I don't think they'll be very good. I put Washington fourth. I'm still down on Washington more than maybe a lot of other people. They were a mess last year. They fired Jimmy Lake midseason after a year and a half. Bad team. I put them fourth because, you know, it is a weak division. They could get some wins, but I'm still down. I don't know if this is a one-off season fix for Washington. Jimmy Lake really put them in the wrong direction. Then we get to the top three in the north, which, again, I think there's a big difference between the top three and the next three. I'm a little higher on Stanford than probably a lot of people. They have the most returning players or most returning starters in the Pac-12. They also get their quarterback back. They had some bad turnover luck last year. They were minus, I think, nine in the turnover margin. That's going to flip this year. And also, I'll say this, and I said this at the time, and it played out as expected. I had concern for schools like Stanford, Northwestern last year, even like a Georgia Tech, that they could not take as much advantage of that COVID year as other schools. Because when you go to a Stanford, you go there most notably probably for the academics, and football is like 1B. So because of the COVID season of 2020, everybody had an extra year of eligibility, and they could come back for another year. So a lot of these programs were a lot older last year. You had fifth-year guys. who had six-year guys. You had a lot more depth and experience on the roster. But not so much for Stanford, Northwestern, even you want to say a Duke. Those are the schools that returned the fewest starters last year in their conferences. Stanford last year in the Pac-12, Northwestern, the Big Ten, Duke in the ACC. Because you got guys playing football, which is great, but they're off to become doctors and like lawyers and other you know bigwigs. And they're off to medical school or wherever else. And it's like, sure, I get an extra year of football, but I have no future in football. I'm going to go be a doctor. So Stanford could not take advantage of the opportunities that the rest of the conference could. It put them behind the eight ball last year. That evens out this year. So I think Stanford will be better than they were last year. Last year was really disappointing. I put them in third. I then put Oregon State number two. I'm a big Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Smith fan. He's their coach. They finished third in the division last year. I think they finished second this year. They had three upsets in conference play last year. 15 starters come back from last year's team, including their quarterback, and they get five conference games at home. But I think Oregon wins the North. 
which probably is the popular pick. However, a lot of questions about Oregon. They lost their head coach, Mario Cristobal, of course. Their quarterback's gone. Their running back's gone. They were plus nine in turnover margin last year. That's not going to happen. They won a handful of close games last year. You can't always count on that. And they have a first-time head coach. How is Dan Landing going to do? How is Bo Nix going to do with his new program? So like USC, a lot of moving pieces, but the difference is at least I've seen Lincoln Riley before. And Caleb Williams is a better quarterback than Bo Nix. I don't know what Dan Lanning's going to bring. I don't know how Bo Nix is going to do after leaving Auburn. So I think Oregon's the best team in the North just because the North isn't very good. But I don't think Oregon will be one of the top teams in the Pac-12. I think the three best teams in the Pac-12 are all in the South, Utah, USC, UCLA. They'll have the three best quarterbacks in the conference. They'll probably have the three best running backs in the conference. They'll probably have the three best pass rush in the conference. They may have, by year's end, the three best coaches in the conference. I think there's a clear difference here in the South and the North. Utah, USC, UCLA are the three best teams in that conference, and they all are in the South together. And I think those will be the teams to watch. Some people believe Utah could be a playoff team. I don't know if I'd go that far. I do think they win the conference. I don't think USC will be as good as people expect in year one. But I think Utah is the team to beat in the Pac-12. Can they become a playoff team? We'll see. But they're the team to beat in that conference. And there you go. Pac-12 preview. We'll preview uh, all the different Power 5 conferences throughout the week. A different conference a day. By the way, there's a storyline building here with USC where, you know, they promised some NIL things. And through the grapevine, we're, we're getting reports now that at least to this point, they're not really following through on some of those promises and the money that's been promised to these kids. You know, Texas A&M's another one, accused of using NIL for this great recruiting class this year. If you look at the recruiting class rankings for next year, and it's still too soon, too early, but Texas A&M right now is 60th in recruiting for next year. And some of the reports, maybe they're just rumors, maybe I shouldn't even give them any, any airtime, but the belief is that, same idea, Texas A&M. These guys were promised something, uh, those promises haven't been followed through with yet, and others are hearing about it and maybe aren't as interested in these promises, whether it's money or certain deals, and they're saying, eh, you know what, you're not going to follow through with what you're telling me once I get on campus. So we're going to look elsewhere. But Texas A&M right now, they're 60th in recruiting for the upcoming class after just being number one all time. USC, we're hearing reports of players unhappy with some of the promises that were made. So that's something else to keep an eye on when it comes to uh, all this name, image, and likeness in college football moving forward. Hey, when we come back, I'm sorry to have to ruin one of the great summer joys for you, but we are here to, uh, to help make you smarter, and we'll do that next as we wrap up Hour 2. It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Wrapping up Hour 2 on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. I hate to be that guy that ruins something special for you, but we're like Mythbusters around here. You know, when it's hot out, and we've had a little bit of a break from the like extreme heat lately, especially with all the, the rain and the storms, but when it's really hot out, it may seem like there's nothing better than getting some great ice cream. Cool you off, it's delicious, it's flavorful, it's, uh, it's cold going down, helps you feel better in the hot summer sun. 
Well, a study just came out over the weekend that uh, explains why eating ice cream actually makes your body temperature go up. Because of all the fats and the sugars in ice cream that your body is working so hard to work all that off to burn the fats and proteins and sugars that with all the work your body's doing to di- digest and absorb the ice cream, it actually creates energy and heat and your body temperature is going to increase. So ice cream makes you hotter in the summer or anytime. Apparently ice cream is a better winter treat than it is for the summer. Just like alcohol, right? People always believe drinking alcohol makes you warmer because it feels warm going down. But alcohol constricts your blood vessels. It actually makes you colder. It decreases your body temperature. Not great to have out in the cold either. Sorry to have to do it to you. Hour three, coming up next. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, just find it on the man search ESPN Radio Charleston. However, you listen to your podcasts. Podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. Plus, you can always get in touch with the show online at charlestonsportsradio.com by clicking on our show page. Or... On Twitter, at Morrow Middays. Via text, 843-608-1734. Where you can always join the conversation on the phones as well. 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You know, oftentimes we can take uh, technology for granted. You don't know what you got until it's gone, until you lose something. Or once the technology goes down, like you don't know what to do. I'll be honest, I don't have a... uh, I have a good memory. I can try to remember things mentally, but I don't have a great sense of direction. So I always have to use my phone, right? And when you don't have service or your phone dies or the GPS isn't working, like I, sometimes I don't know where I'm going. So my remote for my TV stopped working last week. Apparently the battery is corroded. And I get home. I, I was out of town for a few days. I get back home. I try to use my remote. And uh, it's not working great. I figure, oh, the batteries must be dead. I open up the back panel of the remote to replace the batteries. I see the batteries, one of the batteries corroded. I said, oh, well, there you go. There's the reason why. So I get rid of the batteries. I clean out the remote. I put new batteries in there. I figure the remote's good to go. But I don't know if it was the battery issue, if it was the remote issue, whatever it was. The corroded battery was just, uh, that was the sign of things to come. And the remote was slowly dying, though I didn't know it at the time. So fortunately now, right, technology is great that you can use your phone. So I downloaded this app, and it was pretty cool. I could just control the TV off my phone, which I felt like I was in the Jetsons or something. felt like I was a big shot. Just sitting there on my phone, changing channels and everything. That was pretty cool. Great technology. 
But here's the thing. In order to use your phone or connect it to the TV, you have to be able to click OK on the TV. I was able to do it originally with said remote. The remote was working in certain functions. So I was able to click OK, connect my phone. The phone could work. I could control the TV. As the week went along last week, the remote slowly totally died on me. It couldn't do anything. Stopped working whatsoever. And I got greedy, and I tried to connect a second device to the TV to control it, you know, like on an iPad instead of just my phone. And when I tried to do that, and it disconnected my phone, and I couldn't click OK, long story short, from like Wednesday on, I didn't have a remote for the TV. And you know these new TVs back in the day, I grew up with TV at home. You go up to the TV, you got channel, the, the buttons to push to change the channels, to change the volume, to turn the power on. These TVs nowadays, they're completely flat. There's nothing. In fact, King of Queens uh, did this in an episode going back. That was you know almost 20 years ago. But even back then, they were making jokes about it. When uh, they went to uh, Doug's, uh, actually it was Carrie. If you've watched the show, King of Queens, they go to Carrie's boss's house for the Super Bowl because he's got a big screen TV and the remote breaks and they can't change the channel and they can't get it back to the Super Bowl. And they missed the whole game. Same idea here. There's no buttons on the TV. I couldn't do anything. So, man, let me tell you. right? It's like when you lose power in the house, you don't know what to do with yourself. Like, all right, I guess I'm just going to go to bed. The power's out. What else am I supposed to do? Me personally, like, I'm not going to read a book. I'll go to bed at 7 o'clock because there's nothing else to do. I'll go outside for a walk, and then I go to bed when you lose power. Yeah, there's nothing else going on. When you, I, uh, when you lose, the, when there's no remote to control the TV. Oh, it was brutal these last couple of days. I don't know what to do. I had to order one on Amazon Prime, but nowadays everything is still backed up. Right? The great thing about Amazon Prime is supposed to be free two-day delivery. It did not take two days, let me tell you, because I was waiting. Like a little kid, I was waiting outside by the uh, the mailbox waiting for them to drop off my new remote. Finally got it over the weekend. So point being, we have solved the crisis in the Moro household of the TV remote not working. What do you do when the remote doesn't work? Oh, you feel helpless. Can't change the cha- I can't do anything. I was using my PlayStation, fortunately, right? You could download some apps and you watch Hulu and stream different things, ah, but not quite the same. Now, don't you worry. Right? There's certain people listening saying, you think that's bad. Back in the day, my father used to make me sit in front of the TV. I'd be the TV. I'd be the uh, channel changer. So I, I understand. Back in the day, I know. I'm old enough to remember. Right? You used to have to walk up to the uh, TV and do certain things. Uh, you have to change the channel and volume and everything else actually on the TV. Oh, man. You become, uh, you take things for granted, you become spoiled, you lose your remote, you don't know what to do. You, the power goes out, you're clueless. How do you serve, how, how do you pass the time? My GPS isn't working, I don't know how to get anywhere. I haven't used a map in years, a paper map. So that remote stopped working. Oh, it was a rough couple of days, let me tell you. From Wednesday until uh, I just got the remote, it came in late Saturday. Oh, that was a great time when I opened up that package and got the new remote for the TV. Not bad, not bad at all. So now we're back up and running. And just in time to be able to watch the Home Run Derby tonight. I'll have my new remote that I can actually change the channels flawlessly and uh, alter the volume as I watch the Home Run Derby tonight. Brad on Twitter said the Home Run Derby is better than the dunk contest. We'll get back to that in just a moment. Because as he continued, he said, I'm excited to see Ronald Acuna tonight in the Derby. He has been in a funk lately. Maybe this will help get some of that swag back. I know everybody says the Derby is bad for their swing. But last time Acuna was in the Derby, he was all right the second half of the season. I do agree with that second portion. That yes, he has been in a funk. Maybe this will help. I don't know if it can hurt anymore. 
You know, as the Braves have been playing really good baseball, Acuna's been batting about 225 over the past six weeks while the Braves have posted the best record in baseball, which is good on the Braves for still winning without their, their you know, one of their best. But Acuna has not been great the last few weeks. So it probably can't hurt, right? You probably can't get much worse right now. Uh, it could help. As you said, maybe get some of that swag back. It's like a shooter. A jump shooter is very, in basketball, right? oftentimes a jump shooter is very mental. You make that first shot, you're good to go. You miss that first shot, you're a shot fighter. And so same idea. Like you see one, you're, you're in a slump, you see one go in, it could change things. You're in a slump as a hitter, you get well, that one big base hit, drives in a run to tie up the game, or you hit a home run finally off a good pitcher. Right, just takes that one. Maybe Acuna tonight, you see some balls sail over the fence, you put up a pretty good performance, you get that confidence back. Get that swagger back for the second half of the season. Now, the numbers do suggest, right, there is this theory that it's bad for your swing, but the numbers do back it up historically, that guys that participate in the home run derby, statistically, their numbers do decrease when it comes to power in the second half of the season. However, Acuna is one of those outliers because he actually did better in the second half of 2019 after participating in the Derby. So maybe he can handle it better than some other guys. Home run derbies tonight. Peter Alonso is trying to uh, three-peat, and he is the favorite this evening, and he's the the one seed. You know, they do it now like an actual bracket, with the one through eight seeds, and uh, they pair them up where you have to beat your guy, and then you go to the next round, and you have to beat that guy. So he gets paired up with uh, – uh, he's facing Acuna right in the first round, which you would think Albert Pujols should be the, uh, should be the bottom seed. In this whole thing. Pujols shouldn't even be in the home run derby. He's got six homers this year. He's like 42 years old. He's over the hill. Oh, Alonzo, I'm looking at it now. He's the two seed. That's interesting. Kyle Schwarber has been hitting balls to the moon this year. He's the one seed. Uh, but Alonzo being the two-time defending champ, you would, have, you would imagine Peter Alonzo would still be the one seed. I don't know if they're just doing it simply off of how many home runs they've hit because Schwarber's, you know, like leading the league. But Schwarber's the one seed, so he gets Pujols. That's a cakewalk. And then you get Alonso's the two seed against Acuna, the seven, which seems disrespectful. But again, Ronald Acuna hasn't had a great year. He's only got eight homers. And then you got Corey Seager, number three, against number six, Julio Rodriguez. If you're not familiar with Rodriguez, you're going to know him real quick. He's one of the next uh, young stars in baseball. And then you have Juan Soto, number four, against Jose Ramirez, number five, who uh, Jose Ramirez is having a pretty uh, good year. And Juan Soto uh, made big news over the weekend by turning down a half a, was a half a billion dollar contract. So he'll be in the Derby tonight against Ramirez. Uh, we'll be interested to see how things go. Is it better than the dunk contest? Maybe. I think both have jumped the sharp. Uh, I don't think both are all that great anymore. I like the three-point contest more than I like the dunk contest nowadays. I think that's more interesting. The dunk contest is pretty brutal. Home run derby? Yeah, maybe it's better. But I'm not all that into the home run derby anymore. Back in the day when Josh Hamilton was winning at Yankee Stadium... Right, that was uh, like must-watch must TV. You go way back to McGuire and Sosa when they were in the Derby. What was it 1999 at Fenway, and those guys were competing? I mean, Griffey won a few. You go back to, I think it was, uh, was it 94 before the strike when they were at Camden Yards? Maybe it was in 94, but Griffey, right, hit one to the warehouse. Camden Yards may have opened in 94. Maybe it was like 97. Uh, the home run derbies of the 90s and the steroid era were fantastic. Nowadays, I don't know, it's kind of like old hat. And they changed it. It's not the 10 outs. Now it's like a certain time, time limit. You got the bracket. Maybe I'm just uh, being old, but I'm not as into the derby as I once was. It used to be a lot of fun to watch. But now all the game is is home runs. So it's not as special to see these guys hit a bunch of home runs in the home run derby tonight. We'll see how Acuna does. 
nonetheless. Hey, if you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Uh, today was the final day of our summer golf tour. So hopefully you got yourself uh, a foursome. If not, better luck next year because uh, we're all done with the uh, summer golf tour. This was the final week was today, and these foursomes go very quick. So hopefully you got yours for the plantation course. But uh, 10 weeks go like that in the blink of an eye as we offer up foursomes for just 98.9 at some of the great courses of the low country with a different course each and every week. Hopefully you took advantage throughout the summer. Uh, if you did, happy to hear and hope you have fun. If not, uh, make sure you do next summer when the summer golf tour rolls around once again. But I guess that means summer's coming to an end already, right? We're already through the summer golf tour. It's been a quick 10 weeks. Speaking of golf, we opened the show talking about it with Rory uh, coming up short yesterday. Tiger Woods not making it to the weekend. And which of the all-time greats could win a championship before they finally step away? As we'll be saying goodbye in the next couple of years to the athletes of Tom Brady and Tiger Woods and LeBron James and eventually Ovechkin and Crosby in the NHL as well. And this week is kind of a goodbye for Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera in baseball. And when you look at all these greats, I think Tom Brady still, even if he only plays one more year and he joins the Fox booth a year from now, still stands the best chance to win a championship over these other greats. But you can find all that on the podcast, search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. Sometimes things are won, sometimes things are lost. I think yesterday was a combination of the two, where Cam Smith won with his great performance yesterday, but Rory also lost it yesterday. To be up, you know, three strokes on a home course, final day, and he just didn't do anything spectacular. He didn't do anything horrendous either. It wasn't a Bill Buckner moment that you could point to and say, yep, that's where he let it slip away. But there was no sort of uh, big shot like at the end of a basketball game or a Derek Jeter type of play in a playoff game where you point to and say, like, wow, that was incredible. No, it was just kind of status quo. And that was the problem. While you're cruising along in the right-hand lane, they're passing by you in the left-hand lane, and that was Cam Smith. While Rory was just doing his thing, two-putting on every hole, right? you allow other guys to pass you by as Cam Smith puts like six strings, six straight birdies together, whatever he did there. Played really well. And if you want something, such as your first major victory in eight years, sometimes you got to go out there and you, you got to grab it. you got to be a little aggressive. you got to go after what you want. You can't just sit back and hope that it comes to you. And I thought that was Rory yesterday. And uh, unfortunately for him, goes another uh, event here without another major win. And Cam Smith pulls off a great win. First guy in 83 years to get his first victory there at St. Andrews, uh, despite trailing after uh, 54 holes. It's another tough look for Rory. It's another tough loss on his resume. We broke it down more in depth earlier. You can find it on the podcast. Hey, when we come back, we're previewing different conferences in college football throughout the week. We're going to save the SEC for Friday. But this past Friday, before the weekend, I gave you an SEC quarterback that I think could have a much bigger year than expected. When we come back, I'll give you another one. I'll give you another quarterback in the SEC who may be a lot better this, this year than maybe anticipated. I'll let you know who that is next. It's more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show.
On Friday, I gave you an SEC quarterback who I think could have a much better year than expected. I'll give you another one in the SEC in just a few moments here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Hey, speaking of quarterbacks, we were talking about the Houston Texans settling earlier this afternoon, settling their uh, cases with the Deshaun Watson accusers and how they have made the story for them go away pretty quick. Deshaun Watson, maybe, I don't know, if he lives with regrets, well, and he's guilty of what they're accusing him of, he may have other regrets as well. But the way that this whole situation's been handled by his camp, uh, he could have done different things that made this story go away for him a lot sooner as well compared to now waiting on the suspension, still going to hear about it, still have four more cases to be uh, settled or figured out in the offseason. Well, as we wait on the potential punishment for Deshaun Watson, Charles Robinson, who is an NFL reporter for Yahoo, tweeted out earlier that sources in the Deshaun Watson camp believe that Sue Robinson's decision could bump up against or even overlap the first few days of the Browns training camp. And the idea being that she may be taking her time to give the league and Deshaun Watson another chance at settling. Charles Robinson also added that if Watson ends up getting a full-year suspension from the NFL, his camp and the NFLPA have already made the decision to file a lawsuit against the league in federal court. So it will be interesting to see how this all plays out and what transpires. But it goes back to my original thought earlier, that this could already be in the rear view, all of this, for Deshaun, and he could just focus on playing football right now. Instead, he waited a year and dragged a lot of this on and then settled with 20 of the 24 women a couple of months ago, and he could have done that a year ago and maybe taken a suspension last year. And Instead, this story is going nowhere, and we'll wait to see what the punishment will be for Deshaun Watson. Now, on Friday's show, we talked about a top 10 list for top quarterbacks in the SEC, as put together by Brad Crawford for 24-7 Sports. And your reminder, in case uh, you weren't with us on Friday or you just had a great weekend, Bryce Young is number one on his list, followed by K.J. Jefferson from Arkansas, Hendon Hooker from Tennessee's number three, Will Levis, the Kentucky quarterback's four. Then you get to Spencer Rattler, number five on Brad's list. Will Rogers from Mississippi State is sixth. Anthony Richardson for Florida is seventh. National champion Stetson Bennett, number eight. And then Max Johnson, who's now at Texas A&M. Rounded out with uh, Jackson Dart at number 10, the Ole Miss quarterback who just transferred in. And I didn't have any real issues with that. But I did make the case that Jackson Dart for number 10 on the list could be a lot better than people anticipate just by transferring to Ole Miss and now playing for Lane Kiffin. Spencer Rattler's number five on this list for Brad Crawford. He's another that could benefit from a new uh, change of scenery here, right, being with a new program. In fact, here's uh, J.D. Pickle from On3 Sports talking about that, how um, Spencer Rattler could be much improved this year just by being in a new place. Here was J.D.'s breakdown. New setting, new system, new Spencer, right? Like sometimes all it takes is just switching locations and being able to have a fresh start because everything at Oklahoma, in a lot of ways, it sounds like it had a negative impact on him. I mean, anytime you're scheduled or slated or expect to do all these big things and end up underachieving, to be around that, just to be around that physical environment and be around some of those people you feel like maybe you let down, I'm assuming that's an emotion he felt at one point in time, that weighs on a person. And so to be able to legitimately physically move to a new place could ultimately bode well. There's also a chance that getting into a new system is going to potentially benefit him. 
going to be able to see some different things he hadn't seen before. He's talked a lot about Marcus Satterfield and what he's done for him in terms of allowing him to take the next step as a quarterback, and I hope that's true. I wish the best for Spencer Rattler, but that might be all it is. That might be all he needs is just some new digs, some new living conditions, and just a new place might ultimately be what's best for him. That's all fair. My one concern, or a concern, would be, though, however, that while a change of uh, scenery can always be good, right, we all at times in our lives could benefit from a change just for the sake of change. To change companies, to move away, to get out of an apartment building, whatever it is, sometimes it's better off, you know, ripping off that Band-Aid and going elsewhere, getting away from a situation, getting away from a toxic person in your life, whatever it may be. And for Spencer Rattler, he's going through that. But my concern for him is that you're going from Oklahoma to South Carolina. I think he played with better people around him at Oklahoma than he will with South Carolina. He went from the Big 12 to the SEC. The Big 12 where that was a safe haven for quarterbacks, that offensive conference, to now the SEC, which is the toughest conference in football. You also went from Lincoln Riley, the quarterback whisperer, to Marcus Satterfield, who many Gamecock fans did not want to come back to call the plays this year. So while a change can always be good and probably will do Spencer some good as well, the biggest concern is what is he leaving to come into, right? The talent around him, the play calling, the schedule as well. Where I think Jackson darted Ole Miss, that's an upgrade. To go from USC and uh, Clay Helton, this is not, that was not Lincoln Riley's USC, to now go to Lane Kiffin and the job he did with Matt Corral and the job he's done with a lot of guys in the past and the offense he runs and what Ole Miss just accomplished. Ole Miss was a much better team last year than USC was. I think that's an upgrade for Jackson Dart, which is why I think he could be better than people anticipate this year. The one thing for Spencer Rattler, though, when you talk about Marcus Satterfield, and I think Satterfield said the same thing when they brought Rattler in, was just kind of the idea of, hey, nobody believes in you, no one believes in me. You lost your job at Oklahoma, you had a transfer out. Most people wanted me to lose my job. So we're in this together to prove everybody wrong here at the Gamecocks. I put that chip on their shoulder. That's the one thing uh, where that connection could certainly benefit between Spencer Rattler and Marcus Satterfield calling the plays. But I think Jackson Dart, number 10 on the list, will be better than people expect. There's also another quarterback on this list that I would expect big things out of, and that's Hendon Hooker at Tennessee. Now, look, he's number three on this list, so it's not like he's underrated. He's behind Bryce Young, K.J. Jefferson. I think most people would put those three quarterbacks at the top of their list. Young, Jefferson, Hooker. But there is a case to be made that maybe Hooker could be actually the best quarterback in the SEC this year. And maybe that sounds bold. I don't know. Right? You consider Bryce Young's at Alabama. He is the reigning Heisman winner. He's returning to Alabama, the preseason favorite. You would expect, of course, he's going to be the best quarterback in the SEC once again this year. But there's a couple of things at play here. Number one, there has not been a repeat Heisman winner since Archie Griffin 47 years ago. Now, we're not talking about winning the Heisman. I'm just talking about the best quarterback in the SEC. That's a big difference. I'm not telling you Hooker's going to win the Heisman. I wouldn't go that far. So we're not necessarily talking about the Heisman Award. We're talking about the best quarterback in the conference. But if... Bryce Young's already the reigning winner, and we suspect that Alabama will be the top team in the country, then you would imagine in order for him to not win it again, he'd have to take a step back from a year ago, right? Would probably have to have a season not quite as good as a year ago, or somebody else would really have to shine. But also the fact that we haven't had a repeat winner in half a century just shows how difficult it is 
to play at that level for consecutive seasons, to be the best at what you do in that sport year after year. Number two, in recent years, the believed number one quarterback in the next year's draft usually doesn't end up being the number one quarterback in that draft. Trevor Lawrence was actually an outlier where we believed, oh, yeah, Trevor Lawrence will be the number one pick. We got to draft time, and Trevor Lawrence was still the number one pick. That does not happen all that often anymore. Before that, Joe Burrow was a real surprise. Even Kyler Murray before that, Baker too. These were the first quarterbacks off the board. Going into those college football seasons, that was not the expectation. Mitch Trubisky came out of nowhere at UNC to be the first quarterback drafted. Nobody thought that. Carson Wentz came from North Dakota. to He was not the first quarterback taken, but he was drafted number two in the draft. Going into that football season, nobody was talking about Carson Wentz being the number two pick. Kenny Pickett this past year was the first quarterback off the board. Go back a year ago, people were not saying, oh, yeah, Kenny Pickett is the best quarterback in this draft class. I mean, heck, you could ask Spencer Rattler about it because a year ago we were talking about Spencer Rattler being the number one pick instead. He's still in college. He had to transfer. He lost his starting job, and he's trying to work his way back up into becoming a first-round quarterback. So it's rare that the top quarterback going into the season ends the year still as the top quarterback. And in college football this year, those, those, there are uh, those three names, C.J. Stroud, Caleb Williams, Bryce Young, as the believed three top quarterbacks in college football. But oftentimes, by year's end, there's a surprise. Either the top quarterback takes a step back, wasn't quite as good as we expected, a la Spencer Rattler, or a quarterback we never saw coming had a really big year, like a Joe Burrow. Speaking of Kenny Pickett, that takes me to point number three. And this is probably the most crucial in what I'm driving at, and that's age, the age of the quarterback. Kenny Pickett, this past season, was in his fifth year and was 23 years old. He was more experienced than anybody else. He was the most experienced quarterback. He's going up against kids that are far less experienced. In fact, in certain cases, there's probably an 18-year-old playing defense up against the 23-year-old Kenny Pickett. That's a pretty big difference. Well, Hendon Hooker is going to be a sixth-year quarterback this year, and he's 24 already. He's 24 years old playing at Tennessee this fall. By the time I was 24 years old, I was working for my third different Major League Baseball organization. Hooker's 24 years old. He's still playing in the SEC. What were you doing when you were 24? I probably weren't competing in some cases against like 18- and 19-year-olds. Kenny Pickett had played 39 games already prior to this past season, and then Hooker has played 34 games heading into this year. Kenny Pickett was in his third season with his offensive coordinator at Pittsburgh, had that continuity, knew the system. Hooker is now going into his second year in his system at Tennessee. Knows the offense, knows the new coach, and it worked out pretty well for him because last year, Hendon Hooker had 31 touchdowns to only three interceptions and completed almost 70% of his passes. You just didn't hear enough about it. But he had a great year in his first year in that offense. You would imagine he'd be, he would be even better in year two. And he'll be 24 years old in his sixth year in college. Kenny Pickett in his final year at Pittsburgh was 23. When Baker Mayfield won the Heisman, he was 22, fifth year of playing college football. When Trubisky came out of nowhere, he was 22, fifth year of college football. Tom Brady, his final year at Michigan, 22 years old, fifth year of college football. Matt Ryan, 22 years old, five years at BC. Phillip Rivers was 22 when he left NC State. Andrew Luck, his final year at Stanford, 22 years old. 
Tim Tebow, final year at Florida, was 22 years old. Carson Wentz at North Dakota State was 23 and in his fifth year before he became the number two pick. Ryan Tannehill, even, at Texas A&M, his final year there was 23 years old, playing quarterback in his fifth year. Vinny Testaverde, if you want to go way back, 23, his final year at Miami, fifth-year guy. I could keep going, right? Phil Sims, Eli Manning, Jim Plunkett, Joey Harrington, Achilles Smith, Carson Palmer, Jason Campbell, all 23 years old, their final year of college football. All had pretty good careers. All had pretty good years. Now, they didn't all translate to the NFL, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not telling you that Hendon Hooker is going to become the best quarterback in this draft class. I have no idea what his NFL future looks like. Achilles Smith did not work out in the NFL. Either did Joey Harrington, even Jason Campbell. But don't revise history to think that when they were coming out of college, they weren't coming off a big year. There was a reason why Joey Harrington and Achilles Smith were drafted in the top five. They were big-time college quarterbacks. And that final year heading into the draft, when they turned themselves into a top draft pick, they were 23 years old, fourth or fifth year in college, knew the system, older than what they were playing up against, plenty of experience, and did pretty well. Bill Parcells, when he used to look at quarterbacks, we do this exercise every year around draft time. What did he used to look at? Completion percentage, football IQ, but also experience. He wanted his college quarterbacks to have 30 starts in college. He didn't want to draft a guy who was you know, 21 years old and a first-year starter. He wanted somebody who has been at it for a while. Because as I always say, experience is the most important thing. And Hendon Hooker is going to be 24 years old and will be in his sixth year. I have to Google it. I don't know if Sam Donald. I think Sam Donald just turned 24. He's already on his second NFL team. He's about to lose his job with them. He's been in the league for a handful of years. Oh, he actually just turned 25 last month. So Sam Donald just turned 25 a few weeks ago. Hendon Hooker's 24. Sam Donald's been in the NFL now going on, what, his fifth year? Hendon Hooker is going on his sixth year of college. The oldest quarterback in the conference. Got a lot of experience. Now in his second year in a very offensive system. As an offensive head coach who did a good job last year, Hooker was very good already last year. He could be the best quarterback in the SEC this year. And that's not to knock Bryce Young. I'm not telling you Bryce Young is going to be overrated and he's going to be a real bust this year. But you go back and you look. Look at the first quarterback taken two of the last three years. Kenny Pickett was 23 years old, five-year quarterback. Fast forward a couple years prior, Joe Burrow came out of nowhere, right, 23 years old, fifth-year quarterback that final year at LSU when they won the national championship. And now Hendon Hooker comes along. He's even older. He's 24 in his sixth year. We don't get a lot of six-year quarterbacks in college. He's already played almost 40 games. He got almost 40 starts from him. Bill Barcells only wanted to 30. By the time Hooker comes out, he'll have almost 50 starts in college. He is considered one of the top quarterbacks in the SEC. I'm not breaking any ground by telling you he's going to have a really good year. But I think you can make a pretty strong case. Maybe he'll actually be the best quarterback in the SEC. Everyone's focusing on Bryce Young. You may think he's going to win the Heisman again, him and K.J. Jefferson. Maybe by year's end, we're talking a lot about Hendon Hooker and the job he's doing at Tennessee. We'll preview the SEC at the end of the week as we are previewing a Power 5 conference every day this week. We started last hour with the Pac-12. You can find that on demand, and we'll work our way towards the SEC by the end of the week. But I am pretty high on Tennessee this year, as you could probably assume at this point. And Hendon Hooker after the great year he had last year, maybe turns himself into the best quarterback in the conference this year after all. Coming up, speaking of uh, college football, the most interesting team, the most interesting coach this year. I'll let you know my picks as we're about six weeks out from the college football season.
It's the Mar Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. As we get ready for the college football season all week long, Greg Sankey has uh, spoken at the SEC Media Days. I'm sure we'll react to some of that stuff on the show tomorrow. The Gamecocks, uh, um, uh, Shane Beamer will be talking tomorrow with the media. Tomorrow is South Carolina's day with some other teams for their time to talk with the media. So we'll see what comes of that tomorrow. But it's officially here, uh, you know, talking season. We're about six weeks out from college football, which is hard to believe. And uh, looking forward to it, of course, and we'll continue to get ready for the football season here throughout the week, previewing a different conference every day. That's always been my PSA, right? People always say, I can't wait for football to hurry up and get here. And I'll be guilty of this at times as well. I can't wait for this or I can't wait for that. And you're looking forward to something. We're always looking forward to something. Right? That's the thing. We never want to be where we actually are. In fact, I think Jerry Seinfeld does this bit. Right? But when you're at work, you can't wait to get home. And then when you're at home, you want to go out. You want to go out on the weekends. You want to go do something. And then when you go out, after a short amount of time, all right, you want to go back home. And then you're at home, ah, you got to get out of the house. And you get out of the house, all right, I want to go back home. Right, we're never really happy. We're always wanting something else. During the summer, oh, I can't wait for football season. And then maybe you look forward to like the holidays. Oh, I wish the holiday season would just hurry up and get here. Or the new year, or whatever it may be. Or if you live in a cold climate, can't wait for the summer. Problem is when you're... Always speeding things up and looking forward to the future and not the present where you currently live. Before you know it, right, it's like, uh, what was that Adam Sandler movie? Was it Click? Before you know it, all these years go by, and you're older. So you have to enjoy just where you are. When you're at work, try to enjoy being at work. When we're in the middle here of summer with nothing else going on and you're amped for football season weeks away, we got to try to be patient. And let's wait for football season and enjoy the downtime in between. I certainly do. You don't, once football starts, you don't get a lot of down, downtime like I have in the summer. So it's nice. You go out on vacations, right? The summer's great. As much as we love football season, you gotta you got to appreciate the summer while you have it. Hey, I saw um, that uh, Entourage debuted today however many years ago, like 18 years ago, and something like that. Now, Trent will be back on the show tomorrow. Assuming everything goes well travel-wise, that's been a real problem in airports these days. We'll get back to Trent's takes tomorrow moving forward. And tomorrow on the show, we're going to do our mid-season MLB awards. We're going to uh, preview another conference in college football. Throughout this week, I'll give you the biggest concern for every NFL team that I have for this year. This is a good week to do a lot of previewing because there's not a lot of live sports this week. So we got a lot more to do tomorrow on the show and throughout the week. Now, Anderson's been doing a fantastic job filling in for Trent in the meantime while he's been out of town. But I figure before Trent comes back into that seat, since just I'm of a curious mind, 
I'm I'm curious. Entourage, I saw Entourage debuted 18 years ago. If I were to ask you, what's your favorite TV show of all time? What would it be? I'm gonna have to go with The Office. The Office. Yeah. That, yeah, that one's a great one. I did, however, just finish up Seinfeld uh, <laughs> last week. So yeah, that one's up there with me uh, for me too. So both great. Of course. Now The Office. Yes, that plays well around here. We're big Office guys around here. Seinfeld, of course. You're playing the hits right now for me. Absolutely. <laughs> big Seinfeld guy. So what'd you think? Now that you finished Seinfeld, you like the series? Oh, yeah. I loved it. It was fantastic. All they right. kind of got a little stale there towards the end in season nine. But uh, all in all, fantastic series. I, I loved it. I'm happy to hear. You know, that's a great thing about Seinfeld. I think it's the greatest sitcom of all time. But I think that's part of the reason is because it still holds up well. Where I mean, some of those episodes are over 30 years ago. There are certain episodes of Seinfeld that don't play as well today, like when they get lost in the parking garage with cell phones. You know, that wouldn't happen so much. Maybe even the famed Chinese restaurant episode with technology today could be a little different. There are certain episodes that you watch it now and you think, like, oh, that could never happen today. But a lot of that stuff is, you know, still applies to everyday life, and I think that's why it holds up so well all these years later that it's, it's still funny and uh, still strikes a chord. So happy to see that the Seinfeld. Now, the thing with Seinfeld was Larry David left the show, right, for the final few seasons. So when you say that it gets a little, it does get a little ridiculous those last two to three seasons. Some of those are my favorite episodes, though, because it is so ridiculous. But it definitely has a different feel than the first about six seasons because Larry David was gone and no longer writing the episodes. Office, similar idea, right? Once Michael Scott leaves, Steve Carell still has the same writers, but it's, the show is just different the last two seasons. Most shows have that jump the shark moment where uh, they pass their prime and they hang around a little too long. All right, so The Office, that's a good one. Now, if I were to ask you, favorite movie, what would first come to mind for your favorite movie of all time? I'm more of a TV show guy, ah. but, uh, you know, I've always found myself loving the sports movies. I love the Rocky series, really. Okay. The, those are some of my favorites. Those are Ru good. Rudy 2 as well, that's a mm. great one. Eh, <laughs> not quite as good, but okay, yeah. I'll give it to you. And then uh, as far as comedies, uh, I don't know. I mean, anything with uh, Adam Sandler really usually hits well if That's it's a fair. comedy. That's good. I like that. Bobby, I think, hates uh, – what does he hate? Will Fer He hates every all of them. I don't know. <laughs> he hates uh, like Jim Carrey or Ben Stiller or Will Ferrell or all the above. Yeah. So Adam Sandler, all right, that may play well. Yeah, Trent said the same thing too. I don't know if that's a generational thing. He said he's not really into – he's more into ser series than movies. I do think we've kind of moved in that direction where obviously with all the streaming services and all the great series, I mean, there's so many There's so many. I just started watching The Offer last night about the making of uh, The Godfather. Oh, that sucked me right in. That's a good one. I'm a couple of episodes in. I'm going to be binging that now these next couple of weeks while we have some downtime before football season. Maybe it's a generational thing now uh, or just the way that, the, uh, that Hollywood's gone where there's so much good TV out there on all these different streaming services. There's not enough time in the day to keep up with all the shows. And movies, way back, you go back far enough, right, where um, you wanted to be a movie star. It was, like, embarrassing to be a TV star. You were on TV to eventually make it to movies. Now it's almost like the opposite. And we're not making as many good movies, and you could be in these TV series and, uh, you know, be a real star. So I'm watching The Offer. As I said, I recommend it, especially if you uh, like uh, The Godfather or it just takes place in 1970. I love those period pieces. Uh I'm two episodes in. It's already. Uh, it's. I, I. I wanted to keep watching it last night, but I tried to be responsible. I said, "No, I can't stay up all night watching this. I got to get ready for work this week." All right, last one. 
as we learn more about Anderson, who's been doing a great job filling in for Trent these last couple of days. Thank you. Trent returns tomorrow. Absolutely. Yeah, we haven't skipped a beat around here, <laughs> at least from the production side. The host, uh, <laughs> the host is, you know, you can take it or leave it. He's, you don't know what you're going to get with this host every day. Let me tell you. Uh, favorite band or just musician? When you, uh, what, what's your go-to when it comes to music? Uh, who are you putting on? The car ride? When you got to lift yourself up? Who is the favorite musician? You know, I'm not really a huge music guy per wow. se either. I mean, I do, I do like, I listen to a lot of music, but I'm not like. There's a lot of like really popular songs that you could play, and I'd know the song, but I yeah. wouldn't know who who it is. But uh, with that being said, I do like a lot of uh, electric light orchestra. I think oh, is how it yeah. And um, yeah. Other than that, it's just a bunch of random songs that I enjoy. I play most of them here. You you hear my playlist yeah. pretty much. So interesting. All right. So how about that? Not big into movies. And not big into particular musicians. I spend too much time researching sports to know about all the entertainment side of things. I like that. <laughs> all right, sports. Let's power rank. When you talk about which sports you care about the most or you pay the most attention to. Because, like, for me, I, I'm open about it on the show. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to hockey. I watch the playoffs. I'm not a big hockey guy. Uh, growing up, I grew up in a basketball family, but I spent a lot of years working in baseball. I've always loved baseball, and then football's just king. If you're power ranking the sports that you're most into, most interested in, what would that list look like? As of now, I think college football is going to be my number one, closely followed by the NFL. And, okay. uh, and that may change because college football is just seems so uncertain right now. But, um, and then probably college basketball, NBA right there, and then MLB. All right. And then I do like golf for the majors. I, I like watching the majors a lot. Yeah, I'm with you there. I only watch the majors. Yeah. And I usually only watch Sunday of the majors, too. Right. Yeah. Like, I only watched yesterday. I did not watch a single shot. I watched a little Tiger. But otherwise, I didn't watch much golf until I tuned in yesterday. To watch uh, Rory let that one slip away. But I think that's how most people, most uh, the general sports fan, maybe not in this area, but the general sports fan in the country would say the same thing. Football right now is clearly number one. The NFL is the best. You may not be a big NBA fan. Maybe you prefer baseball. But across the country, the NBA does do better than Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball then fits number three, and then you could get to your golf, your hockey, whatever else. But that seems to be the order as well of uh, just the average sports fan in this country. And as I said earlier, it's always interesting when you look at the lead-in to go back to talking about Seinfeld. Seinfeld was such a popular show that when NBC had a new show, they put it on after Seinfeld. I'm a big Impractical Jokers guy. It's like the only show that's still on TV, actual TV, like cable TV that I watch. Love that show. But same idea. Every time True TV has a new show, yeah, True TV, they put it on after Impractical Jokers. It's all about that lead-in. And when you look at sports and the popularity nowadays – the NFL is, of course, king, and the most popular sport, I don't know which direction that line is moving in. I don't know if it's because of the NFL. I don't know if it's college football helping out the NFL, vice versa, what. But they have the best lead in as well. College football is more popular than any of the other minor leagues or college sports. And then you get to the NBA is the second most popular professional sport, and, well, college basketball is the second most popular lead in as well. Then you would get to baseball, and you could talk about the minors or college baseball or Maybe, like, during the pandemic, you're a fan of Korean baseball. You watch all these other leagues. All right, that's third. And then hockey, I know we have the Stingrays right here in our backyard. We love them over here. We have them on the show from time to time. We have a good relationship with Rob and everybody over there. But hockey, you know, it's the least popular of the four sports, and they don't have uh, much of a lead-in. you got minor league hockey. Go watch the Stingrays. Support them. But a lot of these guys come from other countries. They didn't even play college hockey around here. You know, the minors, you never hear about nationally. It's only just like minor league baseball. It's just about in your town you care about that team. But otherwise, 
If you live here in Charleston, do you really care about, like, the Stockton Ports and these other minor league baseball teams? No, you don't. It's just about the team in your backyard and just about the community. But that lead-in is important for these sports. We have the home run derby tonight, the All-Star game tomorrow for baseball. I, I do think uh, Peter Alonso wins tonight. He's plus 200 if you're uh, the betting type. And I think if you could get plus odds for a guy that's won the last two years already, maybe I'm, I'm uh, uh, playing right into Vegas's hands. We've never had a three-peat champion. I don't know how often we've even had a back-to-back champion compete a third straight year. But it's, it hasn't been done. Am I pushing my luck with Alonzo? Maybe. But I think he ruins the derby again tonight. And uh, I would take him at plus 200. But we'll see what happens tonight. We'll break it all down, uh, anything of interest on the show tomorrow. Hey, I tease. I did it again. Right, I'm guilty. I tease something about um, college football that we did not get to. But we'll get to it throughout the week of the most interesting team to watch in college football this year and the most interesting coach to pay attention to. And I'll get to that as we continue to preview college football throughout this week. We'll wrap up your Monday when we come back. It's more Midday Show here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up your Monday in the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss any of the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston however you listen to your podcast. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Talked earlier about Deshaun Watson, preview the Pac-12. Talked about who could actually be the best quarterback in the SEC, not named Bryce Young. And a whole lot more throughout the afternoon. Talked about Rory coming up short again yesterday. Tiger Woods, Tom Brady, LeBron James. Find it all on the podcast. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. Don't forget, you can take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com or through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker, or our free app. Search ESPN Charleston in the App Store. And through the app, you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. On the text line, somebody said, uh, in terms of uh, great TV shows, The Boys. You know, I actually watched the first episode or two. Eh, it's just not my style. I know it's highly regarded, but I'm not really into uh, like the superhero stuff as much. Hey, tomorrow on the show, we'll have our midseason MLB awards that we'll hand out here on the Morrow Midday Show. We'll preview another Power 5 conference in football. And throughout the week, I'll give you concerns of NFL teams. We'll continue to look ahead to the football season coming up six weeks from now. Plenty more to do tomorrow and throughout the week. In the meantime... Life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again tomorrow at noon. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio.